This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Sean Parnell. Sean led a platoon in Afghanistan for 16 months with the 10th Mountain Division. He chronicled that experience in a book called Outlaw Platoon. And if you don't have Outlaw Platoon, you need to get it, you need to read it, you need to gift it to friends right now. It's one of the most poignant, most emotional, and engaging memoirs of modern warfare that I have read. He also started the American Warrior Initiative and has a series of books with Eric Steele. The next one comes out on September 7th. He ran for the House of Representatives in the last election cycle for Pennsylvania's 17th Congressional District, and he is now running for Senate. You can go to parnellforsenate.com, check out what he has going on there, join Parnell's platoon, and sign up for his newsletter, make a donation, find out a little more about him there. We talk about his time in Afghanistan on this podcast, and we talk about his run for the House and his current run for the Senate and the state of the country. Sean is a patriot, a warrior, and a friend. So without further ado, Sean Parnell. You know, so we met at Chris Kyle's funeral uh, on the bus to that, that funeral. And I remember there was like a seat left next to you and I sat down next to you and we, we started talking and, and uh, you know, hit it off. And that was a, I mean, what an insane, I mean, time. Yeah. That was. I mean, in Texas, we were all there at the hotel. We went to the memorial at the stadium and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and then I think from there, like I, you did a Rick Stewart uh, Patriot profile thing, which you can still, I just checked before we came on. It's still out there on YouTube. So <laughs> everybody should go and, and check that out because I thought that was so, so well done. Um, and then you were kind enough to blurb my first novel, which was so very nice of you that I sincerely appreciate. And you recommended that I use Jack Car USA on the social channels before I had any sort of a yeah. <laughs> Instagram or Facebook. I didn't know anything about that stuff. And then, uh, and you recommended, Hey, why don't you use Jack car USA? And I did. And so that continues to be what I am on all the social channels. A, and that is all I'll do to you. I'm a big fan of the at USA. <laughs> like what I'm, I'm a big fan awesome. of that. Uh, but yeah, I think that was a crazy way to meet. Right. And who, who would have thought that like all these years later, I mean, you, you've done so much when you were in the military and now writing all these incredible books and like, like who would have thought that just like two, like basically like nothing burger military officers coming out of the military, like would be where we are in life. It is kind of, it is kind of crazy um, to think that, that we are where we are, you know, it's a privilege, it's a privilege and it's a blessing and it's a pretty damn thing. It's a pretty damn cool thing to be living in, in America and doing this kind of, this kind of stuff. It is. And especially for, for you, I was having this conversation the other day with, uh, with, uh, Mike Waltz, uh, who's, a, a uh, in Congress and he, I think I forget the exact date, so I'll mess it up a little bit, but I think it was late sixties, mid seventies, somewhere in there, we had the highest number of veterans ever serving in Congress. And today it's the lowest number. Um, and, uh, so I want to get, I want to definitely want to get to all that, but before we get to all that, uh, oh, you may have noticed my last novel devil's hand has a president who has a background with 10th mountain division. So that was a little, that was a little, that was for you. So climb to glory, Mr. President. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Love it. Love it. Um, but I want to talk about the road to outlaw platoon, this book right here. And like this, if, 
someone has not read this book, they should stop listening to this podcast right now and order this book and then not just order it, but read it and then give it to friends because I mean, it's one of the most poignant, uh, emotional, honest memoirs of the war in Afghanistan, of modern modern warfare. Um, I mean, a lot of times people are you know, drawn towards a special operations side of the house where we're going out at night and we're, for the most part, choosing the time and the place of, of the engagement. And you're out there every single day with these guys getting after it. And I want to talk to you the road to getting this book out there, but how many weeks was this on the New York Times? Oh my was? gosh. I, and by the way, like something crazy. Yeah, nobody was more surprised about that than me, but I think in its, it's like first year, like it went on, it went on like in its first week and a total surprise yeah. to me, because again, I was just like a nothing burger captain, right? I'd never written a book before in my life. Never, never even walked that path at all. Had no idea what was involved in promoting a book, but the fact that it hit that the, the list the first week, I think it stayed on like close to like 10 or 12 weeks after that. And then it went back on again uh, around Christmas time the same year. And then again in Christmas time the next year. So I think it was on the bestseller list, like all told, I, I mean, over over 25 weeks. I mean, I don't know for- Yeah, yeah. it was like 20, 20 to 30, somewhere in there. Yeah. Like it's, but that's amazing. For those that know publishing or like, that is a huge accomplishment. That is insane. Uh, well, that just doesn't it, it happen very often. Jack, it's especially hard, you know, like when, you know, when they, especially now when people talk about velocity of sales in the first week and, and that helps propel things on, onto the list and pre-sales as well. But then to get on a list, you know, and I think you did this with terminal list, you know, but then to like have the book come out and you have that window of when you want to make the list, but then a year later, like have it make the list, like out of nowhere, that's a testament yeah. to a book that I, I that has staying power, and oh, yeah. you know all sorts of books make the New York Times bestseller list, right? Some of them, uh, some of them, you know, are, are fantastic, legendary books that that will be legendary forever. Maybe some of them not so much, but the books that that have staying power are the books that like people put down and they say like, "Holy cow, man! Like you got to read this book." Right. And that's that's what the terminal list was like. And that's how that's that. And, and that's, I think, how Outlaw Platoon was like on, on the nonfiction side. But, yeah, man, that was a that that was a crazy thing for me. I mean, it was a whirlwind, a whirlwind for me, for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. And the, this will definitely go down as and it's already gone down as one of the and it's, it's weird to say, like, you know, best when you're talking about a war yeah. you know, memoir type thing, but um, it'll, it'll go down as one of those that has that staying power that people reach back to, you know, from generations ahead, go back to this account and read about your time on the ground in Afghanistan, because I mean, it's incredible. And for those that like, we only have a little bit of time this on this podcast, but uh, I encourage everybody to go to Jocko Pod podcast 192. And you guys spend over five hours talking about that experience on the ground. And it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's honest. You're hilarious on there. <laughs> I love talking when you talk about the office with, uh, with Jocko yeah, and how yeah. he likes, he likes the, the British version yeah. a lot better for some reason, which I don't understand. You're, you're right, by the way. Uh, the, well, the well, Jocko, Jocko and I are like very, it was, it was, first of all, like it just, from my perspective, like I didn't know what I was getting into. Like I, you know, going out there and doing that podcast, I just was excited to have the opportunity to do it. And like, you know, I land out there and he's got this like victory MMA gym. And I didn't know what that was like. And I like walk in there and Jocko like leads me in there. And like, if you've been, I know you, if you've been in there, right? Like, yeah, yeah. like all like the octagons everywhere. And, like, <laughs> there's like, 
There's like 150 people in there rolling around <laughs> and stuff. He's got his cool, sexy Jocko stuff everywhere. And I walk, walk, walk <laughs> into there and it's like, it's like he's like walking into the bar and cheers. Everyone's like, Jocko, hey, hey. Like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? And then he walks me upstairs, right? And again, like it's just like a frenzy all around me. Like people are like fighting and punching each other and rolling around <laughs> and like all this crazy stuff. He walks into the locker room and then he goes back into this, like what I think is going to be this little corner closet. I'm like, where the hell is this dude taking me? And and it's like his podcast room, like back it was like little like yep. what, ten by ten podcast yep. where he launched one of, I mean probably the, one of the most successful podcasts in the entire world, you know, from yep. this little room locker room broom closet, you know. Yeah, it's like a torture chamber. I saw the wall, it was all like the sound dampening because right outside, you know, people are just getting after it. So it's pretty cool. It's a cool experience to uh, to be in there and do that. But um, so. I'm going to take people through a little bit about what, uh, like your, your journey to where you are now, now running for Senate. Um, and when it's, uh, it's Sean Parnell for Senate, I think.com for Congress.com. Well, par- yeah, par- um, now it's, now it's Parnell for Senate.com, but yeah. Parnell for Senate.com. Yeah. So you've got this crazy journey from, let's say the morning of nine 11 up to now. So, uh, so where are you the morning of nine 11? And then how does that impact your life? What, what is that decision when you're like, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to go defend the country. Yeah, man. I, I, you know, nine 11, I think changed my life. And I think it galvanized an entire generation, our generation, Jack. And I was just a college kid. I was a, I was an elementary education major trying to wrap my mind around how I was going to student teach second grade, <laughs> you know? And wow. And the thing is, is it like, I didn't come from like a long line of, of military generals. Like, you know, I, I, I knew of the military, but it wasn't something that I was like laser focused on doing. I'm a city boy, you know, born in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And, you know, I remember waking up one morning with this terrible hangover. I mean, me and my college buddies had this party the night before. And I was always sort of like a listless kid. I never really wanted to know. I never knew what I, I wanted to do with my life, you know. And I knew that, like, like being an elementary school teacher would be great and probably be fulfilling. But I wasn't exactly like sure in my heart of hearts that that was what I was was meant to do. Um, and then like just that one morning, wake up in this, uh, in this rundown college apartment surrounded by these beer cans, turn on the television set, um, just in time to see an airplane crash into the world trade center. And in that moment, my life was, was really changed forever. And I just, you know, I, I just believed in my heart of hearts and in that moment, in the wake of that horrific terrorist attack, man, that I knew exactly why God had put me on this earth. And that was to, you know, get in the fight and serve my country and uh, be a part of America's collective response, you know, and I wanted to do all the cool, sexy stuff, going to the, going to the infantry to be on the front lines and then go to airborne school and go to ranger school. And like, really the catchphrase of the army, like it was a little bit before nine 11, but the whole be all that you can be, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. what I wanted to do, you know, and, and I didn't know how I was going to get it done because I, I was, I've never been the sort of biggest fastest, strongest, or smartest guy. I just, I just knew that, that, that was my path and I'm hell or high water. I was going to walk it and accomplish that mission and take the fight to the enemy. And, and eventually I, you know, th- at that point, you know, a couple of years later, I had to transfer schools. I was up at a, a school in Western Pennsylvania called Clarion university. Uh, I transferred to Duquesne university because Clarion at the time didn't have an ROTC program. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to get in the fight. I've got to, I've got to actually have a program to support it. 
Um, transferred to Duquesne, graduated a couple years later and, and was in the army training to go to Afghanistan. And, and in 2006, I, I got my opportunity to do that. And man, it, you know, it's, it's like when I learned the life lesson of, of be careful what you wish for, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was like that I wanted to do all that cool, sexy stuff. And I did, I, I made it through airborne school, went to ranger school. When the army sent me to a couple of cool, sexy schools, I was assigned to um, a light infantry platoon in the 10th mountain division. And I, I got to Fort drum, New York in 2005. And, and back then, like we knew that we were going to Afghanistan, but intelligence from where we were going was really scarce. In fact, a lot of the guys in my unit, Jack, like they, they we just thought that it was going to be a stability and support operation that the, the lion's share of this country were focused on the Iraq war. And this and this was at a time where people talked about the surge, right? This is a, a critical point where George W. Bush was talking about sending more troops there um, and the debate over weapons of mass destruction and whether or not we should even be there. Uh, but uh, Afghanistan, we just felt like, well, hey, we're just going there. A lot of my NCOs have already been there a couple of times and they're like, we didn't, we didn't see anything. Um, oh, wow. So we didn't know what the hell we were getting ourselves into, man. And, and I feel like, when we finally got there, we I, we were thrown into the meat grinder, and it was like drinking from a fire hose. The, the, the enemy that we faced there was just relentless every day. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, yeah. Man, yeah. I mean, describe it in, in Outlaw Platoon, and it's insane to think you went from. I mean, you had some training. I mean, you went to those schools. Yeah. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. Yeah. And then you, you know, you're you're uh, and you fought to get infantry, I think. And then you, <laughs> bam, you're out there, and you get there a little bit before your guys. Um, just like, you know, officers, we usually, we get there a little bit, two weeks ahead of time, yeah. a week ahead of time. Some of the leadership from the platoon gets there to get things set up and then receive the, the rest of the platoon. But, um, so you get there and your first day in Afghanistan is one that, uh, it, it's, I mean, I know you won't forget it, but nobody who reads this book will forget it either. Um, can you describe that a little, I mean, you are thrown into the meat grinder and it didn't start, it wasn't, it wasn't like, ah, we're going to get you up to speed here. Take a couple of weeks. You're in there day one. Yeah. And, and you know how that is. And, and and again, like it's like I I had some training, but, you know, as an infantry officer, I mean, you know, most of the jobs that my guys had prior to carrying a machine gun in the mountains of Afghanistan was high school shortstop. You know, so these guys aren't, you know, they're high speed, low drag people like they're tough as nails. But these guys aren't like Green Berets, Special Forces, Navy SEALs type guys. These are just kids, you know. Um, and you know, we get to Afghanistan and, and I mean, we, uh, we land our CH 47 or Chinook helicopter. We land under fire, which, which is commonplace, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but it's pretty commonplace, uh, for our base, but we get off there and like, like, you know, it hits the fan, everybody runs like 20 different ways. And, and it just seemed like I'd never been in a moment like that. And it was, there's so many things going through your mind, but like that first moment where someone's like where you realize is like, Oh my God, like somebody out there that I don't know is trying to kill me for reasons that I don't even, I, they don't even know me either. You know what I mean? That's a, I, I remember thinking that, like, that is a very, it's a really surreal thing. Like these people want me dead. Like, and this is real. And we get to the base and, and of course we run from the helicopter landing zone, helicopter takes off. We all run for our base and I mean, I had my NCOs who had already been in Afghanistan before, like knew exactly how to react in moments like that. And you know, whether guys were running to the aid station or to the tactical operations center to help, like everybody seemed like they had a job, but I didn't really know what the hell to do. And 
I remember desperately looking for a way to help or to be helpful. Um, but you know, it ended up being some young private saying like, Hey, sir, if you're not doing anything, like we need, we need an all hands on deck situation. Like we need all the help we can get at the front gate. And I'm like, of course. And I, and I run down there and all these rockets that have been fired at us, the enemy didn't really let up on those on, on the firing for a second. We get down to the front gate and I don't know what to expect, but we show up there and like our base was separated from the rest of Afghanistan, Jack, by like these like wrought iron bars that you would see in like an American gated community or something. And, and we get there and like, you know, you've got our interpreter arguing with, uh, you know, American soldiers and Afghan families. It's just chaos. And as I took a closer look through those bars, I realized like it was like 20 Afghan families carrying uh, broken, bloody bodies of their little kids. And these rockets that the enemy had fired at us had overshot 107 millimeter rockets that had overshot our base and overshot the bird, but landed in this like um, little Kalat compound school playground and, and wounded and hurt a bunch of young Afghan kids. And man, that was like, um, you talk about culture shock and you talk about like, it's, it's setting in real quickly, reality setting in real quickly that, that combat is real and it spares no one. Um, and, and oftentimes kids are the ones that are caught in the middle of it, you know, and, and boy, is that horrible. And so I just tried to help as, as best I could grab a little girl and uh, along with a bunch of other soldiers at the front gate that day and tried to run her to our, to our aid station where a bunch of our medics and our, our company doc was there trying to, trying to help administer first aid and, you know, end up getting this little girl to the aid station a little bit too late and she died before I could even get her there. And, and on my first day in Afghanistan, I just remember like, you know, like you walk into an aid station like that, Jack, and it's like soldiers are, are, or, and you've been in situations like this. I say soldiers because I was in the army, but they're, they're like unbelievable. They're remarkable. Like when, when traumatic moments happen, it's like you walk in there, there's like 10 of these little of these tables that are like stainless steel tables. Right. And they're like, Everyone is laser focused on trying to save these kids' lives. And so when, when it came, when we all realized that the little one that I was carrying hadn't made it, um, it was just like I had to scoop her up off the table, make room for the next little kid, and I'd just walk her out to her father. And my first day in Afghanistan, as a like, you know, really young college kid, the combat leader, like first day in Afghanistan, I'm I'm walking the dead body of a little girl back to her father, who her father just like looked at me and like just stoically nodded his head, like, hey, thank you for trying. And then he turned around and walked away. And that really stuck with me for for a lot of reasons, uh, that moment, obviously, because it, it was so traumatic. Um, but that in a nutshell is what Afghanistan is like. Um and you know, I, I personally believe that like that, that moment was when I really start, like felt a shift inside of my heart of, you know, you're, you're really changing from an insulated American citizen to warrior or somebody that can experience moments like that one and, and endure, um, not necessarily have all the existential answers that come with that, right? Like, how, how do you wrap your mind around that? You don't, um, but you, you learn to like, lock it away, compartmentalize, say whatever you want, but just focus on the mission. And, and what I couldn't get off of my mind, Jack, was like, how am I supposed to lead these men, right? How am I supposed to lead these men and experience moments like that and endure, you know? Um, but you just figure it out because you have to, 
but you have to, but that stuff changes you, man. You know, it does. And like thinking back on it, like the kids over the, that's the part when you, when I look back, like the parts that stay with you are like the kids crying and, you know, on target or whatever, you know, this, the, and when you talk about it in your book too, like giving candy, like we want to do that as Americans, you know, we want to yeah. give candy. We did that too. And, you know, when I'm there in 2003, we have candies and all that stuff. And, and then you, you know, you see, like you had that very similar experience. You see these, the boys come out, give them to the girls and then they get, girls get beat up for the candy. And then you're like, geez. And for you, the end of that chapter, I mean, it is so emotional. Like it was a very, it's a very emotional read. So when uh, you could take that uniform that's covered in blood and you walk down to a burn pit and you burn your uniform mm -hmm. first day in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Like that was just so telling and so powerful. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's and, insane. And then, no, and then you get to go, oh, sorry, go ahead. No. And I remember, man, like, yes, it was. And I remember like right after I burned that uniform, like, and I don't remember if I talk about this. I think I do talk about this in the book. Boy, it's been a long time since I, I, I paid, like flipped through it. But like, um, we were having spaghetti at the DFAC that night. And, and like, to this day, like red spaghetti sauce, like after, you know what I mean? Like little things yep. like that. That's just, like, oh, yeah. it's just like, that's what I think about. Like when I think about that day and I just remember like, I obviously I couldn't eat, but it's just like the red spaghetti sauce is what sticks in my mind that day. Yep. You know, it's amazing how that stuff happens when it's, you associate something with a traumatic event and it stays with you the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, so powerful. Um, then you get tested under fire where you have a chance to not just be on the receiving end, but to, uh, to bring it. And you do like, this is your first test yeah. now as a combat leader, when everyone's looking at you to make a decision, uh, on May 7th. And that's really the first time I think where you can maneuver forces and go get after it. Um, so, and that's, you roll into an ambush essentially on that day. Is that right? Yeah. Oh man. And the enemy had us down and out. Yeah. It was May 7th, 2006, the first day that I had gotten shot at. And we drove around like this big hill. It was called Hilltop 2474. It was what it was named on the map. It was a, a hilltop called Gangakal Hill. And so we roll around this hilltop that was just a sheer cliff face up to the, to the left outside the driver's side door. And, and to the right was just this sheer cliff down. So there was nowhere for us to go. So we come around this turn perilously balanced on this road. And it was like, we drove down into a, like a gravy boat. And at the bottom of that gravy boat, before we could drive out the, uh, uh, out the other side, we got ambushed from both sides of the hill. So from machine gun positions on the top of the hill and, uh, and uh, like down across this wadi system and up on the top of another hill, they just start pounding us from both sides. And I had five gun trucks with me and I had probably another five gun trucks. There were Afghan, uh, there were Afghan Toyota Hiluxes that were, that were leading. Um, but they stopped, right. They stopped right in front of us. And as soon as we got attacked, they just, it was like somebody hit, you know, a, like a wasp's nest or something with a baseball bat and they just scatter. And so, but those five trucks were basically like roadblocks for us. Right. And because, we turned around about a 90 degree bend to get down into that gravy boat. So we couldn't drive through the ambush. We couldn't back out of the ambush. We were just getting pounded, man. Just, just absolutely pounded from either side. And, you know, with sniper fire, volley fire, uh, rocket repel grenades, machine guns. And, um, you know, there, we were down and we were out, man. Like there was not like we couldn't drive forward, couldn't assault through an ambush. Cause how are you going to do it? There's a cliff face on one side and a cliff drop off on the other no way out of this situation. And, and that's really like when I thought like, 
holy cow, man, like we are not facing, you know, farmers with pitchforks or some ragtag insurgency here. Like these are the these fighters that we are facing in Afghanistan had, you know, cut their teeth uh, or fought against the Russians in the 80s and then in the Afghan civil war in the 90s and then against us after uh, a post 9-11 era in that country. Like they were really good and they ambushed us at a perfect point. And so I just remember thinking like, got to do something that's not taught in the field manuals, you know, and, and that's why I always tell young soldiers or when I go talk at West Point or whatever, like the field manual is just a guide, right? You have to know these battle drills and internalize them and train on them. They should be second nature to you, but they're just a, they're just a guide, right? A framework. You've got to train yourself to think outside the box because a lot of a lot of officers in the army and the infantry, I think, especially young ones, have trouble thinking outside the box. Now, special operators like yourselves, that's what you do. You think outside of the box. But in, in the Marines or in the Army, everything has a regulation and a structure and a chain of command. And so, um, and so in that moment, you know, the TTPs or the tactics, techniques, and procedures that you would use a, a, of, of react to a, a near ambush is, hey, this is going to real, really suck, but assault through the ambush, right? <laughs> we couldn't yeah. do that. We couldn't do that. So um, I had to think outside of the box. And after taking fire for about a minute, um, got out of the truck and just tried, did my best to rally the troops. Instead of assaulting through the ambush, my intent was to, to run up to the top of the hill, try to get my men to run with me and have the Afghan National Army try to get them consolidated, organized, so that we could push through the kill zone and actually take the high ground and fight back. And Jack, like when I got out of that truck, man, it was like, my first thought was like, <laughs> it wasn't like some heroic thing, man. <laughs> like, it was like, I immediately regret this decision. Like, this is really <laughs> stupid. What am I doing? And like, it was like, I mean, like, it was- Should have been a teacher. Yeah, it was like, it was like, like the moment just like stuck in the middle of a kill zone, the moment just like kaleidoscopes around you. Right. And it's like, there's so much going on. Like you can't process it, you know? So I just ran my ass off and tried to get to the lead truck and pounded on the, on the door in the truck, hoping that my second squad leader, a guy named Phil Baldwin, who was just, a, he was just a stud. I just looked at him and gave him the old, like, <laughs> rally. And I just kept running. I didn't say anything. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even tell him to follow me or anything like that. Like, this isn't going as planned. I don't know if they're going to follow me. And I get halfway up the hill and like, clearly the enemy is like training in on me and shooting at me. And like, and I could hear over all of this chaos, like these single shots from, and it, it was from this Dragunov sniper rifle that we learned after the fact that a sniper on the ground was just trying to shoot me. Thank God he wasn't that good of a shot. <laughs> but, um, but I'm thinking like, so we're at 15,000 feet, you know, and I'm, my lungs are on fire. I'm carrying 90 pounds of gear. Like my, my, my legs are like filled with lead. I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to die out here. Like, I, I'm not even going to be able to make it. I'm going to fall out before I make it to the top of the damn hill. This is like the least inspirational thing ever. And, and like, and I turn around in that moment, like see like all of my men have, were following me. And I was like, that was like taking a shot of adrenaline, you know, and, and that was like what powered me through. And we get to the top of the hill. We were able to you know, long story short, like get the ANA back to the trucks and organize a counterattack. And I think we ended up killing, you know, eight between eight and 12 enemy troops that day. 
Um, but we learned a lot about how they fought and, um, boy, that was, that was uh, sort of foreshadowing, I guess, for, for what we, we had in store for us that deployment, because it was a, like a back and forth chess match, you know, like they'd hit us and we'd learn, we'd adapt. And then they hit us again. We, we'd learn, we'd adapt. And, and it, after 16 months of that, we got pretty darn good at it. And I think we killed so many of them that we knew the terrain in Afghanistan better than, than they did, which was, which yeah. was really interesting. But, um, but yeah, that was one hell of a, and I, I remember coming back to the chow hall after that. And like, I'm like thinking like, Oh God, you never know how you do, man. Like, you know, like I knew that like we had, we had taken the high ground, fought back, killed a bunch of them. Um, but you know, I, you just never, you don't know. You, you just, maybe it was successful. Maybe it wasn't. I didn't know how my NCOs were going to react. And I mean, they're very real, like barometer check, like, Oh. You know, and, and I walk yeah. into the chow hall and Sergeant Sabaki, who is like this, like tough as nails guy, been in combat before, like several times, my weapons squad leader, he ends up like, like coming in and like slapping me on the shoulder and like, you know, this habit of like shaking the shit out of you. Like, and he's like, and I'm sorry, my mom, I don't know if I'm like, a, if your podcast like does a swearing thing, but I, I sometimes, it. <laughs> sometimes it just, it just flips out. Do it. And he like just shakes me and he goes, great job, sir. And then all my NCOs like stood up and started clapping and stuff. And I was like, so wild. This is like, this, you know what this is like? This is like the military version of like Rudy, you know, <laughs> the team, like picks him up on the back of the shoulders. And, like, slow clap. Slow clap. Yeah. <laughs> And like that, so was, fantastic. that was a pretty damn cool moment for me. And yeah, and that was, and it was at that moment, Jack, that I realized that like, you know, we all volunteer to serve this country for a litany of different reasons. But at the end of the day, like being in combat is about not letting down your brothers or your sisters in arms. Right. And I knew that it didn't matter how bad things got or what the enemy threw at us that I, I was, I was going to do everything that I could not to let those men down and yeah. yeah it's like that it's like that band of brothers line you know like we stand alone together you know and that's just sort of what it feels like out there and and come hell or high water i wasn't gonna let those guys down and you should have been killed like 100 150 200 times like I know. you know and and people might have missed it but you said 16 months and i want to get to that a little bit later because that's uh, a tad bit longer than you expected yeah. and yeah. a normal army deployment <laughs> um but uh and there's an amazing moment that i want to talk about when you learned about about staying a little bit longer by a little bit i mean yeah. a lot longer um but uh yeah i mean you're adapting to the enemy enemies adapting to you constant game of adaptation yeah. and uh and you did that on that uh on that first that first ambush that first engagement that may 7th engagement that was obviously very impactful to you to the guys um yeah just incredible love the slow clap and, and jack like like again i want to reiterate like i'm not like a I'm not like a special operator or a <laughs> guy, right? Like I was born in the city of Pittsburgh. So like I had guy, I had guys in my platoon that like were from the South and had been hunting their whole lives. And like, like, it's like they were born to be in the military. So this was like, yeah. this was like a big deal to me, like of, of being successful on the battlefield. And, 
And it was funny, like, like Jocko, like you, you talk, we talked about the Jocko podcast and Jocko just looks like he was made for the fight. You know? Right. Right. And, and I remember like having a conversation with him or something offline about his hair, you know, and he's like, I save my <laughs> hair because I don't need hair. And I said, right. yeah, but when you get on the objective, you got to look <laughs> fabulous, man. You know? And, and like, like, that's the difference, right? Like I'm just, you guys are bred and born for the fight. I feel like I was just a, a guy that, that joined the military after 9-11, wanted to do his part and, and didn't really, I don't, like I said, it wasn't always like the biggest, strongest, fastest, but it was, it was the reality is, is, is great people, great troops inspire their, their leaders. And, and that, that's what drove me to keep fighting harder than I, I really ever thought possible. Yeah. I mean, you stepped it up. That's what's great about, you know, America, we come together and stand up and just like you, I um, mean, come did, thought you were a teacher one day, September 11th happened. Next thing you're going to be in the military and not just, just, you know, something in the military, you're going to be infantry and you're going to get out there on the front lines. Um, I mean, incredible. And then early on, you have an experience with interpreters. Um, and of course, they're a, a critical part of dealing with the local populace overseas. And uh, for me, the units I was with, we had vetting process. We had, you know, they're getting in some cases, even polyed. We fly people over from the United States. They poly these people in certain, uh, certain instances with certain, uh, covert action programs and things like that. Um, they had to get TSSEI cleared to be in a ah. talk to do these different things. Um, so I always felt very comfortable with our interpreters. Um, you had to hire from essentially the local economy. Yeah. Um, and do your own. And maybe as a turnover from the units before that sort of thing. But, you know, the vetting process was, I think, a lot of kind of gut feel. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're in, in an interview yeah. type deal. So, and your your first one was in there. I mean, he has an amazing backstory. His father, uh, I think, was was killed and he's in there for for a reason. He has a, he has a, you know why he's doing what he's doing. Yep. Um, and then he gets, he gets killed. You find him dead alongside the road for essentially helping out the Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have that, of course, we're thinking about that uh, as we leave, get ready to leave Afghanistan. Yeah. And we're thinking of all these people who helped us over there and what their fate is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably what's happening to them right now as we're, as we're talking, uh, as we're waiting to figure out this visa issue program and get them to the United States maybe. But I think there's something like 18,000 different people, uh, you know, and that's probably on the low end because yeah. uh, there's various ways that the enemy would look at how you help Americans, maybe by not saying something yeah. or by actually helping, maybe by, by cleaning a, you know, there's so many facets, but the interpreters in particular, um, I think are at the top of those target lists. So, um, but you had one get killed early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think that made uh, an impact on you going forward, but, um, he was killed for helping out you, for helping you guys out. Yeah. Yeah. Abdul was his name. And, and that really affected me deeply because Abdul had, joined or came to help us and fight for his country's freedom because the Taliban had assassinated his father. His father was fighting against them, trying to fight for a free Afghanistan. And Abdul sort of felt like it was his responsibility to to help us help the country. And, and this guy was like a hard charger. He, he, he really believed in the mission and he was like our head interpreter. And you're right. Like back then we didn't have a real vetting process. The interpreters that we used, um, were the ones passed down to us from the special forces teams, from the Green Berets teams who came in after Operation Anaconda and stuff like that. They had just were they were hired by SF and they were passed down to like I think the 173rd Airborne and then to the 10th Mountain to us after that. And so um, Abdul was one of the first interpreters in that country that had worked with special forces teams. And man, he was just great. 
And one day, you know, his family had gotten some night letters and he wanted to go and help his family. And there was some drama on our base. Our commander didn't want to let him go. And I understand that. Like we had a mission and and, you know, he was needed for that mission the next day. But at the same time, his family was only 45 minutes south. And like, we've got to do everything we can to protect our interpreters and their families while we're there as well. So long story short is Ab- Abdul left the base in the middle of the night, uh, went to go check on his family and was ambushed at some point uh, as he left the base before he reached his house. And we found him dead on the side of the road. And that that affected me. That affected me a lot. Um and we had an interpreter step up and fill the void of, of head interpreter. His name is Youssef. And again, this is another guy that that had been uh, working with um, the Americans since the invasion of Afghanistan just after uh, September 11th. And so uh, his name his name was Youssef. Um, but there was always something that sort of sort of like bothered me. I don't maybe bothered us. There's something like in here that just didn't feel quite right. And I just chalked it up to you know. Hey, there's a cultural divide, like, you know, and there really there is. Um, and 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 so he filled the role of of, of head interpreter. And, and Jack, here's like because this was so early and there wasn't really like Task Force Titan, I think, stood up later, which was uh, like a like help they had a system and a process for vetting interpreters. Like we didn't really have any of that. Um, but even the the interpreters that we got later that came from Task Force Titan that were fully vetted. They, they got to our, our region in Afghanistan and they couldn't speak Waziri, you know, and that, that was a real problem because there was a regional dialect in our area that was just distinct from anything else uh, in Afghanistan. And so that's why guys like Abdul and Yusuf and, and Shah were so valuable to us. And so Yusuf's we couldn't get another interpreter is what I'm saying. It's not yeah. like it's not like, oh, I don't like this guy. I'm going to find somebody else. No, you got what right. you got. And, and yeah, there's nobody else. yeah, there's nobody else. And so he ended up stepping up and, and filling that role and and then ended up getting some guys hurt and killed uh, later on in the deployment, unfortunately. And that part is crazy because I think a lot of people don't really think about Iranian involvement. We think of Iraq typically. We think of rat lines. We think of EFPs coming across to influence us in uh, in Iraq so that they can, you know, so that Iranian influence can then essentially take over, do, do what they couldn't do in eight years of uh, the Iran-Iraq war. Um, but uh, you don't typically hear too much about it in Afghanistan uh, unless you're there and you're studying it and you're really, really involved. Um, but this guy is making sat phone calls to someone in Iran. And some national level intelligence sources figure this out and get, eventually get in touch with you guys. And then he gets arrested. And um, but uh, the Iranian involvement piece in two two places in particular, I think you talk about it in, in Outlaw um, Platoon, a bomb making um, uh, cell over the border in Pakistan, but facilitated by Iran. I mean, that's, yeah. it's amazing how all these thing, things work. Um, but when that chirp did eventually get arrested, what, what, what happened to him long-term? Do you, yeah. You know? So, so what, yeah, you're right. You let's describe that perfectly. And, and, and this is something that like, as a leader, like I regret profoundly and not putting a stop to this sooner is that, you know, we had sat phones on the base, um, and our interpreters wanted to like call their families every now and again. Um, and, and, and we had this like policy where they, we didn't really want them in our MWR morale, welfare and recreational. Like, so like, that's all the, that's the only way that they had to contact their family. And, you know, we were sort of new to Afghanistan and everyone wanted to like have a good relationship with the interpreters and all this. And, but 
my NCOs had told me time and time again, like, hey, sir, like we should really be careful about giving a sat phone to an interpreter that's unsupervised or be careful about like giving op orders in front of uh, interpreters or letting an interpreter ride in the command truck where they can hear all the radio signals or know exactly where we're going. And all the while, like I knew that that was the right answer and I knew that I should have done something. But as a leader, it was just like one of those things like, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. There are more pressing things. And come to find out that Yusuf was not using the sat phones, at least later in the deployment, he wasn't using the sat phones to call his family. He was using the sat phones to communicate with um, a, an, an Iranian IED making cell in Pakistan. And again, as you mentioned, it ended up being some national level asset that had that had heard him talking uh you know, on this cell phone in, in Eastern Afghanistan and um, ended up, I, I went on, on leave and, and Yusuf ended up communicating with this Iranian IED cell about the location of, of one of our observation posts and where we were going to set up. And uh, waiting for my platoon on that hill was a plastic Italian TC6 anti-tank mine, you know, more metal in a pack of cigarettes uh, than something like that. Um, and so my, my truck rolls over this. I wasn't there because I was on leave, but my truck rolls over this mine and, it, and this mine completely destroys my truck, wounds everybody in it um, and kills my Ford Observer, a kid that I really liked and, and, and loved, actually. And, um, and, and that was because, you know, we, we you know, I, I feel like I didn't do my job as a leader and sort of like, you know, holding those, hold, you know, listening to my NCOs, really. And, 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 and then this, you know, it's a leadership lesson, you know, and, and, you know, if there's something that, that your people all around you are telling you, you need to act on and is urgent and you know, it's urgent, but maybe you're just a little too lazy to do it or didn't want to be the bad guy. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, um, sometimes good leadership means that you're not making friends all the time, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah so, so at, Yusuf gets, ar- he gets arrested well, well, what happened was, Jack, is that like we knew that it was Yusuf and I ended up coming back from leave and we had to wait to arrest him at the right time. Like we were going to do a patrol up to our battalion base up in, in, in Oregon E and we were going to arrest him there because we had MPs there that they could help facilitate that transfer the right way. But so in the meantime, we just had to like pretend like everything was cool with Yusuf. And so I get back in the base and I'm like seething. I find out that he had turned on us, stabbed us in the back. And like, I'm sitting down in the chow hall and, and like, he sits down like right next to me and like, Hey, commander Sean, like, you know, like, just like that used car salesman type, yeah. like, um, demeanor. And I'm just like thinking like, man, I just want to kill this guy right here and right now, but couldn't. Um, but we end up doing a patrol going up to Oregon a couple days later and, um, he ends up getting arrested and, be, and, and believe it or not, maybe you probably do believe this, uh, but there was some snafu in the way that his paperwork was was processed and then up letting him go, even though we had like we had definitive proof that he was working with Iranian IED cells in Pakistan to to conduct attacks or terrorist attacks on Americans in Afghanistan. He ended up letting him go. And um, no way. Yeah, it was it, it. That just sucks, man. But it just I think it just speaks to how difficult the fight is over there on so many different, like in many ways you're up against your own bureaucracy. 
you know, up, up against the complex operating environment that is Afghanistan. Like you're facing, like we had, we were fighting Hekmatyar, Haqqani Network, the Taliban, Al Qaeda. We're trying to distinguish between all of that and like just criminal activity. You know, it's just like it's insane. And you're just throwing in there, like you said. I mean, you're you know fresh out of college. Yeah, you, yeah. You've, been, you've been to Ranger School and Airborne School. You're uh, all the guys with you have been. You know, they're playing video games or playing yeah. high school baseball. <laughs> you know, a little bit before that. And then here you are thrown into this incredibly complex situation for which there are really no good answers. Yeah, uh, right. And exactly. In, the, in that, uh, in the case of interpreters. Yeah, they become you know part of your platoon. You know, they become a part of the team. So I totally you know see how that that situation how that, how that came about because they become part of your team. You're they're fighting next. Your life depends on them in many cases. Uh, so it's it's just crazy. But there's there's an interesting thing you said about going on leave. Um, so people that might not know that you're forced to in the army. And you know for me that sounds awful because you're in it and then you're forced to go for two weeks get a taste of back home and then get thrown right back. It's like hell week leaving, you know, they let you sleep for two hours or 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is. And then you're right back in the surf zone again, but they let you taste it for a second, which is so much worse. That's when you get the most quitters in, in hell week is when you go back in that surf zone after they let you sleep for an hour or so. But I mean, off, so they make you go on, on leave for two weeks. And what's interesting when you talk about your fighting a bureaucracy, there's a couple moments in the book that really highlight, highlighted this to me. Um, and one was when you step off that plane in Bagram, getting ready to go home, you're covered in blood and dirt and sweat and grime. You got your, your magazine and your weapon. And of course, out walks the guy in his perfectly clean uniform that's pressed right there on base for him and has the perfect haircut and comes on out and immediately beelines to you to give you a hard time. Like, that's that's why it's so easy in my novels to make bad guys out of those people because they <laughs> exist. These fobbits, they're there and you just want to smack them. And so for me, I channel all that rage and then it comes out in my novels in a fictional sense. And then the other one, which is so outrageous, is the dog situation. Oh my God. And for those oh. who have been downrange, been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Philippines, whatever, um, you get these dogs that are strays essentially and they become part of your platoon and they get names yeah. like, I think we had J-Dam, I think was the one in <laughs> Afghanistan. You know, you have Trigger, J-Dam, you know, they always have some sort of a name it seemed like, yeah. like that. Um, and, and you guys had these dogs that were part of your platoon. And of course you mentioned general order number one, which for those listening is like a, a catch-all to give senior level leadership any reason whatsoever to get you, but it, it's, it, I think it singles out like no alcohol, no gambling, no porn. Uh, although they don't really focus on the gambling or the porn, they seem more <laughs> focused on the, uh, the alcohol. Uh, <laughs> I think like good order of discipline type, type stuff, but, uh, you have one of your dogs like barks at some, you know, yeah, so like, yeah, they're, they're, from another base. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny. Like I, I get attacked for this, like, and uh, I have been attacked by this, like in the political side, which is a totally different thing, but like, yeah, somebody like a, a male clerk, had, you know, they take these ring routes, right? Like yeah, I remember the ring, the ring routes. routes. Yeah, so like a helicopter will fly from Bagram, then to Salerno, then to Organi, mm -hmm. then to Bermel, and then back to Bagram. They call those ring routes, right? And yep. so, oh, yeah. Um, they'll send male clerks out on these ring routes to deliver your mail. And one of our dogs had, had barked at a, at a male clerk, and we were um, – we were supposed to go out on a mission and we knew that there was some drama there, but it never dawned on us that anything would really come of it. Um, and yeah, we had all these dogs, right. And, and the dogs were important to us for a lot of reasons because they were like our tether to like what a, a normal life at home was like. 
you know, you're tethered to humanity in many senses. Yes. Like it's yeah, like in a world where you are surrounded by the enemy, even the Afghan National Army that, that you're working with that are supposed to be your friends, like maybe they are and maybe they aren't. Like maybe one day they 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 turn their AK-47 on you or you're walking and patrolling and they shoot you. You just never know. You're just surrounded by potential enemies all day, every day. But these dogs, like they're always there for you. That's yeah. it. And it just, it just, we had a dog, it was, it was called Trigger and we had a bunch of dogs. It's like you said, and it was just, yeah. it was just amazing, man. And we came back from patrol one day and found out that, you know, a, a medic had been sent down from our battalion base and had uh, killed all of our dogs and threw their bodies in the freaking burn pit, man. And, and that just, to this day, it just makes me seethe with anger. <laughs> like just yep. so this this is what I mean by what you you know the bureaucracy and fighting this the, the bureaucracy is like I understand why it exists. I understand general order number one, but like and I, and I understand like the whole thing with dogs, right? Like, like we can't like give them the vaccines that they need, or so maybe they can be rabid and bite somebody. I get I get all that, but like these dogs like had been vaccinated or medics were working on them. They were part of our family and like, Nope, Nope. General order number one says no dogs. So we're going to kill them and throw their bodies in the burn pit. Insane. It, it's so infuriating. Like that, that chapter made me just see as well, because it, it's indicative of so many other things that happen in, in a, in a gigantic bureaucracy, I guess. But in yeah. particular, it's, it's particularly infuriating when you're out there doing the nation's work, going out every day, thrown into these situations like we talked about for which there are no good answers. Yeah. You're adapting on the fly. You're doing the best you can. You're covered in blood. You're losing guys. And then they kill your dogs. Like it's that just, makes me so angry. It's just, it's like, I swear to God, like it, it doesn't matter what generation you serve or what war you fought in. Like every veteran, every combat veteran, I feel like has stories like that, you know, yeah. where like, that because of the bureaucracy, confounding decisions are made that profoundly affect the morale of, of the troops. And, and any civilian that reads this stuff is like, what the hell? But it, yeah. it just never, it never, like every, every generation, like it just, it always happens. Like stuff like this always happens in the military. Yeah. Um, <sighs> Infuriating. We had vets and we actually, we uh, had some dogs that we really liked and I think enough time has passed now, but we would uh, smuggle them back to the United States as our working dogs. Because in the beginning, you could do that. You, yeah. know, you just like label the crate, you know, give put, fill out a little paperwork, sign something, check a box. And all of a sudden, it's now a military working dog. And so we got a lot of them back. I mean, this, is, saved, this is the difference saved them that between way. the special operations world and my world. Like you guys had, it, it, like, it, you guys had more flexibility, I feel like, with stuff like this. Like we were just like, <laughs> Like we it's a bending of the rule uh, yeah, yeah. You know, to the breaking point, you <laughs> know, but hey, sense. I mean, it's the right thing to do. It's you know? the right thing to Screw do. Those guys. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and yeah, but it's, you know, that's why I talk to people like when they, hey, combat is, it's just like getting kicked in the crotch every single day, every single day. It's not. Well, especially for you guys. I mean, it's like, you know, we had, you know, we, you know, we were in some outstations and especially in, in Afghanistan, you know, in Iraq, there's some more, you know, most of the time anyway, there's, there's a little more, uh, cause you're just so close, you're closer to things. You're closer to airfields. You're, it's not as far to get you your gym stuff and, you know, food and all that stuff. But where you are, you're, you're out there in Afghanistan, you are hanging it out there every single day. And, uh, and, and you're on your own, uh, in, in many cases. So you're just making do with what you have. You're, 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 you're adapting, you're figuring it out on the fly. And there's, there's one chapter in particular, I know I got to let you go here pretty soon, but uh, one chapter that everyone needs to read when they're making decisions or voting 
for people who are going to be making decisions on, on national security issues on Afghanistan or Iraq, whatever it might be, is that village of the damned oh. chapter. Yeah. Oh my, I mean, we all know that stuff happens, Absolutely. Uh, not just in Afghanistan, it happens other places, you know, around the world as well, where life is just not as, it's so weird to say, you know, it's not as precious to some people. Or it's not. A, no, it's, that's right. That's exactly what it's like, Jack. I mean, you know, uh, you know what this is. You like. Yeah. You, Can you describe that, that what, what happened there? Because it is, people just don't know. They might, you know, have heard something or like read something here or there, or maybe think that things like this happen, but no, it's like not uncommon in most of the world for these things to happen. And you saw it firsthand and it is just, uh. and, and it's just, that was just one instance of, of many. And, and like, you know, the, there was a, a remote village uh, whose village elder had been accused for, by the Taliban of, of helping uh, Americans. And, and by the way, like there were village elders out there that that helped us. Uh, he, he wasn't one of them. Um, and as as payback for that or as retribution for helping us, they captured his his grandson and they tortured him and and they tortured him in some of the most horrific ways possible uh, just to just to send a message like this is what happens if you'll if you help the americans and this is a six-year-old kid six-year-old kid yep and we end up finding this kid wandering in the middle of the road and and the taliban had just abandoned him there and we brought him back to uh, the village elder um and and he was just remember he was so grateful that we had that we had saved his grandson and, and it really, it was that moment that saved us months later where, um, where comes with information. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He had, he had helped us. He had helped us by, by letting our command know that the enemy was moving in huge numbers to attack us. Right. But it was that act of kindness in the middle of combat that I think saved all of us. And but I mean, Jack, this was like one instance, like there were, there was another time of a guy who actually was helping us like in vicinity of the border, uh, helping us stop cross border, uh, uh, or border crossings, uh, of, of Al Qaeda insurgents. And the Taliban had somehow found out that he was helping or Al Qaeda had somehow found out that he was helping. And, and, and one day they like snuck up to his house in the middle of the night threw a grenade in the, in the crib of, of where his, where his newborn baby was sleeping and killed the baby. Like that's just, and we ended up rolling up on that scenario like the day after. And, and he was just like, yeah, they, they found it out and they killed my, it's matter of factly. That's the thing. Like, like, like stuff like this is just the norm over there. Like, yeah, they killed my, they killed my newborn baby, you know, like it's just horrific, horrific stuff. And with that six-year-old, you find him, he's essentially getting eaten alive by these bugs. His mm -hmm. eyes have been burned out. He can't cry because his tear ducts are burned out. They've been raping him for weeks, knocked out his teeth. Like it is absolutely horrific. And it just makes you. That's what they do. And we, we, you know, up until that point, Jack, like you, you've heard of like the, the chai boys in Afghanistan and like the whole, like the, like the whole man love Thursday. Well, that's just like part of, you know, they, they, they have these, they take these little boys and these little boys become their little like. T boys and they just shadow around these village elders everywhere. It's just the way that children are treated in that country um, is just horrific, man. And there's almost no value placed on human life um, by by those in power and and the enemy that we face in Afghanistan at all. And there there's something. So having just heard talked about those stories, and I'm going to jump ahead here. 
uh, it just makes it even get, makes me have even more respect for you. And for the people that read this book, they'll get that same, they'll, they'll get that same sense. And then after seeing things like that, and then you're in a position where you're in this other firefight and there's guys in these trees and uh, above you and a guy gets shot out of a tree and he lands essentially at your feet by the front yeah. right tire of your vehicle yeah. and your turret gunner comes out with the Mossberg with a shotgun yeah. and it's going to finish him off. And you're like, no, like yeah. we're Americans, that's not what we do. And like that, that just, I mean, that, that is why that. We have to maintain that moral high ground. We do. Okay, no matter what we do. That's the only thing in many cases that differentiates us from the enemy. We take yeah. care of, of these kids. You know, once you ha we have you, well, you're a prisoner of ours. Okay, now it's our job to protect you with our lives, essentially. And you do that in a situation where it would have been so easy just to either just not even look the other way, but to keep, you know, just to not hone in and say no. And you do it to save that turret gunner from a lifetime of regret and second thoughts and Anyway, that, that was just, that's such well, an amazing chapter. Um, well, really. Thanks, man. Like, I, I mean, like, I also think it's a leader's responsibility to help be that moral compass. Like mm -hmm. when you're surrounded, I mean, when you're, again, like when I say that you're surrounded by death and destruction every day, like it's not hyperbole, you are. And it, it, it's real easy to lose yourself in a situation like that lose your humanity in a, in a situation like that when there's very little oversight. In fact, the only oversight is you as a commander, yeah. as a leader. And so in that moment, I, it, it wasn't, I mean, I have to say like, of course, like we're Americans, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. And that is all that weighed heavily on why I made that call. But also I didn't want that, that piece of human garbage who preys upon little children um, and preys upon the people of Afghanistan to weigh on the conscious of one of my troops for the rest of his life, which he undoubtedly would have. He was that, mm -hmm. that, that, that person, that, that horrible, horrible, uh, insurgent or terrorist was not worth, was not like, wasn't worth yeah. it. You know, that's amazing. I mean, that's, uh, that says a lot about you. So it's a lot about your, oh, your character, you. uh, especially moving forward into the, into the realm you're now in, in politics. But <laughs> before we get there and I know I got to let you go, your kids are, are coming. Um, there, I said, I was going to talk about one thing, which hey, was we, getting, like, we, we can go, we can go like, we could have another conversation later. We can go a little bit longer, whatever, awesome. whatever you want, man, whatever you want. Okay. Okay. Maybe a little bit longer just to get to the, the politics and yeah, what you're doing course. now. Cause of I think course. it's, it's so, uh, I mean, I, I, it's so incredible what you're doing, but right here, you think you're going home. And, you know, this didn't just happen to you guys. This happened to other people. It happened in Iraq. I think when I was there in 2004, <laughs> I want to say guys are at the airport. Some people are home already, you know, waiting to receive uh, people and material coming back. And then you get this word and uh, you get woken up. I think you're brought into like the tactical operations center and, and uh, your captain dies there. And he says, man, I'm going to read you a quote from former Marine Corps Commandant Char uh, General Charles C. Krulak. When the hard times come, and they will, people will cling to leaders they know and trust, to those who are not detached but involved, and to those who have consciences. They will seek out leaders who stand for something bigger than themselves and who have the moral courage and strength of character to do what they know in their hearts to be the right thing. And you're like, what on earth is he talking about? Like, we're about to leave. Is this, you know, it's just like, is this this way to say goodbye? And uh, then he says, uh, man, we have been extended for 120 days. Yeah. Yeah, man. I know. That's exactly where we were. They're like, Hey, where's it going with this? <laughs> yeah. 120. That's not like a week or two, and so, you yeah, know, yeah. which is devastating enough. Look, like, man, we were, so this is a, like, we're taught, we went through a year of absolute hell. We got shot at every day. 
Like my base took over 4,000 indirect fire attacks, one of seven millimeter rockets, mortars, whatever, what have you. Like sometimes you'd get hit with a rocket attack and they were really accurate. And by the way, we got hit with 122s as well, which are like six foot long rocket. And they had actual launching capabilities in the range to actually launch from Pakistan and hit us in Vermel. So like yeah. we couldn't even effectively shoot back if we wanted to. And they were just, they would just pound us. It was accurate. Mm -hmm. And so after a year, right. Uh, we built the very first combat outpost in Afghanistan. It's called, it's a place called combat outpost Marga. Um, and this was right as the, our strategy shifted in Afghanistan as well from like a strictly kinetic counter-terror strategy to counter-insurgency. And what came part and parcel with the counter-insurgency or the coin strategy was building these little outposts all along the border with the intent being of like, hey, in order for us to pacify this country or help uh, grow and extend the reach of the government, we've got to live with these people. So we set up all these little bases. Um, I didn't like that strategy in Afghanistan for a litany of reasons, but but we built the very first one. And, you know, it was in such a dangerous place, man. Like we had all these combat engineers come out and help us fill these HESCO walls, which are basically like, like, like basically massive sandbags, right? That are, and, and like they had these big, like, front end loaders it would fill up i mean everything i mean yep. they got out to this place where we were building this base that was so dangerous and so bad that we had set up our perimeter at the middle of the night and the base was half done and the engineers just left they just left in the middle of the night <laughs> like totally they just totally did him out out of there man it was like we woke up we're like where the hell do engineers go like what what are we going to do with this base like we're stuck out here Five gun trucks, 24 people on the ground, going home in two weeks, right? Nobody wants to die, by the way. Nobody wants to be like the last soldier killed like on a week, week before you come home, right? And we're in the worst place in our area of operations and a half-filled base. And, and no joke, like no joke, man. Like we go to bed that night and like, again, like we had, we had positioned our gun trucks at the four corners of the base. We were doing the best we could to protect it. And we get a call at like three in the morning that night. I get a call on the radio saying like, hey, you know, you know Blackhawk six, like you got, um, or Blackhawk three, six, you've got like 350 people coming to attack your position right now. And I'm like, I'm thinking like, what? Are you, are you joking? No, like we had had Predator in the area. They had seen like 250 enemy troops marching from Pakistan. And I've got the little, the video of the Pred like up on my screen. And I see that the, this group of people were like walking in this tactical column formation on either side of the road. And, and the Predator video is like following this line all the way back to Pakistan. It's just, you see these little, like it was like in white hot. So like these little white like dots moving them and they just never ended. It was just people forever. I'm like, holy hell. And then there was another group of like 50 or 60 coming in from the Northwest in a massive pincer movement to hit our platoon right at that moment, two weeks before we came home. And we're like, oh my God, like, isn't this some shit? Isn't this how it always goes, you know? Um, and thankfully our, our battalion staff, our battalion commander, Captain Die, Colonel Toner, all those guys were just right on it. And because we had Predator in the area and an S2, like our battalion intelligence officer was doing the right, doing, doing the job right. Um, we had air power stacked up and ready and waiting. And like, you know, the last thing that these guys said is like, because oh, we're listening to their comms, of course, the enemy, we're listening to the enemy's comms. And they're like, yeah, like attack the base, cut off their heads, leave no one alive. And then like, 
like like we brought in a B1 strategic lancer that dropped like four or five JDAMs right on top of the tactical column and killed everybody there. And then we had like the as the B1 peeled off, we had A10s come in. And as the A10s peeled off, we had Apaches come in. And like all throughout the night, like we're seeing these Apache helicopters, like they do what's called bumping. They like fly straight up in the sky and they peak, they loiter and they just boom like one like the gun run the whole way down and my men and i are just like watching this like it's like some sort of like monstrous fireworks display or and then so so anyway we get to the we do we the next day arrives like we'd stop the attack um and we do what's called like an sse a sensitive site exploitation and we go on to this um we go out to the the objective area and it's just one of the most gnarly things you've ever seen like pieces of human beings everywhere up in trees. It was just, that's what you want. I mean, as grisly as it sounds to people who are probably watching your show, like as an infantryman, when you hit the objective, the only thing you want to be doing is kicking boots, right? Like you don't want to have to be in a direct fire engagement with the enemy, but we get there and we're pulling pack mill frontier ID frontier core ID cards off these people. And, and we're seeing that these guys had like Merrill combat boots, body armor, um, every one of their weapons, like whether it was AK-47s or PKMs, like were like still had the pack and grease on them with um, Iranian serial numbers on them. These guys were like super well equipped, had body armor, helmets, better boots than we did, and they had pack mill ID cards on them. They pack like a pack mill facilitated attack on American troops. And three weeks later, we were extended. That was the last one on our base. We were supposed to go home, um, and I had guys like all the way home that had been with their families for a few weeks at that point. And we get that, that order that you said that were extended. And, and it, and it, the reason why that was profound is like, you barely make it home alive, right? You convince yourself the whole time, just, you know, 300 days in a wake up, 200 days in a wake up, 100 days in a wake up. And then, then you finally get it. You turn in your, your ammunition, you turn in your armor piercing sappy plates and you just say to yourself, like, holy cow, I made it. Like, I'm going to get to see my family. And then the army says, nope, you're going right back into it. And by the way, two months from now is another spring offensive. And you're going to have to be the tip of the spear on that one as well and somehow make it out of that alive. Jack, that was the greatest leadership challenge that I ever experienced in my life because I was the last one on the base. Like my, myself and my platoon sergeant were, were the, the only two people from our unit that did that were still on the base. Like we had not left at all. And when our men came back, man, they were, they were just crushed. Oh, like yeah. their morale, their souls were crushed. And, and that last four months, man, was absolutely brutal. And of course the orders don't just say 120 days, the orders say 120 days for until, until mission complete. So every, every private, like the private, the barracks lawyers are like, we're never going home. We're going to be here forever. I'm like, no, we're going home. I promise. Like, just stay focused. But it was brutal, man. It was so it was, brutal. That was that was by far the worst moment of that deployment. Yep. You know, by far. And um, I look back on it, and I can't even believe even today that it was freaking real. You know? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a movie. And it, but it, but it, it this stuff happened. I mean, it happened to you. It happened to a few other. I mean other units out there. And I mean, it's incredible. But what is so cool about that is what happens next when they're like, load up the trucks, we're going out, combat operations. We're not going to sit around here moping about, you know, we're, no, we're getting back after it right now. 
And uh, it's so cool. They're, they're, I love this. This uh, darkness fell, bullet scarred Humvees awaited us. So you're loading up, you've got ammo, you're ready to rock, getting out there again. And you say, not a man refused his duty. Despite everything, we had not lost the one thing that mattered most, faith in one another. Mm-hmm. Chris Brown stood in the turret, shoulder sagging. As I opened the door, I asked him, how you doing, brother? He looked down at me with a young man's eyes, a thousand years old. We got this, sir. No worries. That, so awesome. Yeah, I mean, man. I, that was, I remember what a testament to your platoon and your leadership and the American, you know, fighting soldier right there. That yeah, says it, all. It, it does, man. I, I, and I, yeah, I, I remember that like it was yesterday. I hadn't thought about that moment until this, this podcast, but it is, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, to look I, cause I can, I can do this, right? Like I, I remember my men prior to the deployment and I remember what their eyes looked like before. And I remember what their eyes looked like after. Yeah. And when you go through something like that, and, and it sounds weird, but I know that you, you'll get it. But like, I can almost tell someone who's, I can almost tell a combat veteran just, they, you know, just by looking in their eyes because you can see what they lost. Like there's like a little, there's like like that little sparkle, that little twinkle in, in, an, in an American, in, in a person's life who's never experienced death like that on a day-to-day basis. Like they have that still. Combat veterans don't, you know? And, and I remember looking at Chris's eyes in that moment, like this was a kid, right? He was in his 20s. He was like a, just a kid. And he, he might as well have been 70 years old, at a, you know, and with a lifetime of experience. And so you always hear this, like, and when I talk to veterans today is like, you know, you always hear like, there's that like cliche phrase that, that, um, uh, uh what is it? Youth is waste. Youth is wasted, wasted on, on the young. On the, yeah. On the young. Right. Because like, you know, they lack wisdom and, right. but, but, but combat veterans, people who have been to war have a lifetime's worth of wisdom and they have their youth to seize upon it with. Right. And so like, don't forget that. Like, and that's, I, I, you know, war is hell. It's horrible. It stays with you every day. It changes you. There's no question about it, but just like experiences in life, like they change us. Right. So war is, is bad. It changes us in a lot of ways. Um, but every experience in life changes us. Right. Like if you, if you think about yourself in high school, how you were as a freshman, you sometimes you think back when you're a senior and think like, God, God, man, the hell was I thinking? Why the hell did I wear that? Or why can't believe I did my hair like <laughs> I had that? Mullet. Yeah, my, the point is, is that yeah, yeah, which the mullet is coming back. By the way, <laughs> that's what I hear. Uh, yeah, so, so like, <laughs> trying to help bring it back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the experience of high school changes you. The experience of combat changes you. It doesn't mean that it breaks you. And so, um, I, I just that that moment that just it just it spoke volumes of the men in my platoon and, and, and they were the reason why we fought so hard. You know, uh, we didn't want to let each other down. Incredible. And, and I'm not going to read the epilogue in here on purpose because I wouldn't be able to make it through without, uh, shedding a couple tears. So if, if somebody reads that and is not and is uh, dry eyed at the end of reading that epilogue, like, I don't think we can be, be friends. Like it's so, so powerful. Um, but when we talk about coming home, I want to jump back to like, you didn't make it through this deployment unscathed. Um, I mean, you got blown up and you endured something that most people, uh, would have gotten sent home for, would have gotten, uh, medically retired for almost immediately after they found out what was going on. Like you get blown up. Um, and for the rest of that deployment, you have fluid like leaking out of your ears. 
Yeah. Like, people it's don't so- understand like traumatic brain injury. I mean, you're dealing with headaches, you're dealing with blurry vision, your things leaking out of your ears, this blood mucus pus stuff coming out of your ears. Um, and you, I mean, you didn't want to go home. You stayed with your men, you stayed in the fight, you adapted. But, um, but that experience of getting blown up, I mean, once again, one of those other of the 150, 200, 300 times you should have died. Um, you don't, but it rings your bell pretty good. Yeah. Um, so what, what happened in that, uh, in that experience? Well, um, I get criticized a lot for this looking like in retrospect that like, Hey man, like you were hurt. Like, and because you were hurt, like your leadership was compromised. You should have handed, did a battle handover with another leader who is more, you know, and, and all that's like, all that's true. Like it's valid. It's a valid point. Um, but my counter to that is, is that in the moment, like, yes, I was blown up by a, a rocket propel grenade and then an airburst mortar. And, and I think I had hairline uh, skull fractures, which caused a cerebral spinal fluid leak. But like, I had men that got shot in the head, like that in that scene where you talked about the guy getting shot, falls down the mountain is right outside of my truck. Like just before he had, he had fallen, he had shot one of my soldiers, a gunner in the truck in front of me in the head, a guy named John St. Jean, a guy from Haiti. And I watched it happen. I watched them exchange fire. Um, I watched St. Jean get hit in the head and we were administering first aid and the bullet had penetrated his helmet, but the helmet slowed the velocity around down enough that it didn't penetrate his skull just the skin mm-hmm. and skirted around the outside of the skull and out the other side yep he was back on on patrol two days after that and so i for me it's like that's what i was surrounded with every day a, a, one of my so another guy Kanton win gets shot in the head in musakela um has a blood clot on his brain in germany the doc's like you're going home he's like nope i don't want to go home put me on blood thinners get this fixed and send me back Sergeant Garvin gets shot in the arm almost, and, and doesn't just get, it's not just a clean shot. Like the AK 47 round was tumbling. So when it hit his arm, it like almost blew the lower portion of his arm off, barely kept it on it, barely were able to administer first aid and keep his arm intact. And then we were able to save it, but he went home for basically eight months. And then after we got extended, he came back. So like that was what in the moment, that was what I was surrounded by. How can yeah. I possibly go home and, and, and let myself be evac when my men are giving far more than me, you know? So, um, I, yeah, it was tough for me, man. Like I, I did in the, in the moment at the time, like this was back at a time where traumatic brain injury or TBI wasn't even an acronym in the army. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't even, you know, it, it was really like like when you get your bell rung playing football or ice hockey or something as a kid, like, and you're like, Hey, here, take some Advil, drink some water, but go to sleep right away. You know, um, that, that was the advice that I had. So I just sort of like, you know, it was tough. Like I remember having like blurred vision and, and seriously bad headaches for a while. And I think for about a month I had that fluid leaking out of my nose and my ears and, and, over time, the fluid stopped. I just assumed things got better. But even after I got home, <laughs> the condition just got worse and worse. But eventually, I ended up being medically retired because of it. But yeah, man, that was um, it was brutal. But nothing. It was what I experienced was nothing more than what my men had experienced. You know, and you know, when eighty five percent of us, almost almost hundred percent of our, almost everybody in my platoon was wounded. Even the new guys and. Some you know some of my guys came out of there with two or three purple hearts. It's crazy. Um, Amazing. I mean, you got a purple heart. Uh, you're. I mean, 
you're play, all your guys are playing hurt. You're playing hurt yeah, right next to right, them. I mean, right. you're leaking fluid out. Did you realize how bad it was at the time? Like after you, I guess right uh-huh. after you get your bell rung one and then two, when things start leaking out of your nose and your ears, um, do you realize how bad it is? Or are you just kind of like, ah, I've got to walk this off. It'll it's healing up or whatever. My first thought was, um, cause I get blown up and this was in June 10th, 2006. That was when my platoon just got, we just got slammed. Uh, we were attacked by, a force that outnumbered us by at least, at least 10 to one. And I had 24 guys on the ground and like, they just, Oh man, they just hammered us for hours and hours and hours. And, um, and I'd gotten blown up in the first minute and the engagement. And, and by the way, every member of every key leader in my platoon was down and out in the first minute of my engagement. So they obviously were watching us and watching how we interacted and identified key leaders in their reconnaissance. Um, but, but um, I remember like, sitting up and getting pulled up by one of my troops and like sitting with my legs splayed out in front of me, like a two-year-old kid on Christmas morning or something, just like sitting out. And I remember I feel this fluid leaking down from my brain or from my nose, who ultimately it was from my brain, but it, yeah. was, it was my nose. And I, I'm like thinking I had a bloody nose or something. And I just remember going like this and looking at it, it was just this clear fluid. And my first thought was, okay, this is, this isn't blood. So I'm good. And I <laughs> And I, but you know, like this was like, I'm telling you, like I was laying on the ground like this when I came to one of my soldiers slapping my face and he like was laughing and I'm like, why is this dude laughing? And he's like, you got blown up, sir. And I'm like, what? And like, I open up and like, I look to my left and I'm looking at my hand laying on the ground just like this. And I just remember watching my hand and it's like shaking a little bit, but the round, like the around my hand, I'm watching bullets land in between my fingers like it like the, like the rate of fire jack that was being rained down upon us was so heavy that i was laying there felt like oh my god dude like i can't i can't move not even one inch or i'm gonna get in and we were up on top of this hill so there was there was no like there was no place to really take cover although at night when we emplaced, it looked like there was, there was places to take cover, like behind rocks, trees, whatever. But the enemy had these two support by fire positions directly to the east of us that were taller than our position. So what the enemy was doing is because they were on an elevated position, they had three machine guns on each of these hilltops. They had us in a crossfire, right? Because these hilltops are firing down on top of us, but they were hitting us with plunging fire from elevated positions. So even in some of the death blades that we had on top of that hill, it didn't matter because the round was coming in and landing on top of us. So there's nowhere we could go. Crazy. And they were hitting us with airburst mortars. So we had these big trees up there. They're about this big around um, that were just getting like, they were just like being blown. Apart. Oh Nothing. my gosh. And so I'm yeah. like on my back watching this and watching these trees just like, boom, just explode. And I'm like thinking, Jesus, like how the hell do we get out of this? And I looked to my left and I see my platoon sergeant who was like the real guy that was like, he was the, he like, 40 plus years old was with the seventh ID in Panama. Like had been in station in every hellhole all around the world. Like the toughest guy I've ever met. His name is Greg Greason. And um, now he has like a beard down to here and he's like, <laughs> which is, which, I, which makes a lot of sense. But um, I'm looking at him. He's like pointing to his back and his back is like covered in like this blood. And he's just screaming, I'm hit, I'm hit. And I'm thinking like, Holy cow, man. Like the guy that's like, tell like, advises me on everything first thing i see is him getting hit and i sit up and like i'm sitting there and i looked at him like hey sergeant greason what the hell do we do here what's our play and he looked at me like this with this quizzical look on his face he said sir like 
we're getting attacked, shoot back. <laughs> and I thought it was funny, but I also thought, like, man, like shit is hitting the fan if the platoon leader is shooting back, right? Yeah. Because because my radio is my greatest weapon. And if yeah. I'm actually on the line shooting, then we are in trouble. And we were, man. And I, we, the force that attacked us that day were, was very, very sophisticated, Jack, because like, we got attacked. And as I mentioned, everybody, all the key leaders in my platoon were wounded in the first minute. But yeah. what they had done is hit us with airburst mortars first, right? To keep all of our heads down. Like that happens. Everyone takes cover while they simultaneously emplaced two separate support by fire positions. They then had us in a crossfire. They were hitting us with plunging fire and they just beat the hell out of us like that for a long time while we were taking cover, trying to figure out what was going on. and. After about, I mean, 20 minutes of that, they attacked us two, with two different assault elements from either hill. So they had used indirect fire to keep our heads down, simultaneously in place support by fires. And then after they had fire superiority, they attacked. That's exactly how we fight, man. And, yeah. and that firefight ended up going on for, man, six, seven hours. And it took, we dropped. We dropped at least 20 2,000-pound JDAMs to get them to break contact from a B1 strategic lancer and then from an A10 after that. 20. 20. And you <laughs> got me, dude. I, I, like, even then, like, and even then, like, we went back, we went back to the base, and even, at, like, everyone was wounded. We lined up, bandaged up our stuff, and even then, we, we got in another platoon's trucks and then went back out after the enemy and dropped even more bombs on them. Like, we just, it was just, it was just... I look back on that time in my life and I'm telling you, it feels like it was a freaking dream. Yeah. And somehow I made it through that. You're right, man. Like I, I should have died. That's part of the reason why I like, I wanted to make it a career and ended up it being, it was taken out of my hands anyway. I was medically retired. But like when I got back and it was like, I got back and this was before I realized that they were going to medically retire me. I'm like, bro, like my nine lives are up. up. Like I can't yeah, be the point right. where like, I get whacked over there if I go back another time. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, that deployment was just crazy. And in America, and ultimately, the reason why I wrote that book was that Americans, by and large, in 2006, didn't even realize that a war was going on in Afghanistan. And and that's that's ultimately why I wrote Outlaw Platoon. No, exactly. It's uh, it, there's so few touch points now. Like in World War II, everybody had some sort of a touch point. If they didn't know yes. someone personally, well, what they were they were doing? They were uh, they were saving you know metal. They were saving rubber from yes. their tires. They were like you know they were putting up blackout curtains on their windows on the east and west coasts. Uh, like they were they were somehow they were impacted by the war and the war effort, and they had a part in it. They were investing, even if it was a small investment. Uh, some people made the biggest investment you can make and the ultimate sacrifice you can make, obviously by losing family yeah. members, but others, you know, Hey, here's some tires from my car to here. I'm supporting the war yes. in that way. Yes. You know, what, whatever it was, you know, people, I'm going to buy a war bond, you know, whatever it was, everyone had some sort of a touch point. And today I forget what the percentage is, but it is very low. It's like 24% or something, man. Like, yeah. and you're thinking about it. It's like, you know, 0.4% uh, are pe of people in this country are, are carrying a very heavy burden for the rest. And these, you know, are, and these are people that are deploying and redeploying and redeploying all during the longest period of war in our nation's history. It, it's just like, and you're right. Like back during world war II, you'd be hard pressed to walk into an American neighborhood and find somebody that was not directly affected by the war effort. Everybody seemed to have skin in the game. And, yep. 
And, you know, very few people do now. And ultimately, that's why I wrote Outlaw Platoon, because I think when I came back from Afghanistan, I, I really was, it was very important to me to help people who were struggling, like with combat trauma. Um, I just felt like maybe as a guy who had experienced it himself, I might be uniquely positioned to help others. And, and that was sort of like the, the next mission. Um, but writing that book, um, working with John Bruning, who sort of taught me the ropes, um, I, I realized some pretty profound stuff. And that was, you know, as I was writing, I was like taking the war out of myself and I was putting it on the page. And that was like very cathartic for me. Yeah. You think about it like that, like the war is not in me anymore. It's on this page. And then every time someone picks up a book and reads it, it's like they understand about like what my men and I went through. Mm-hmm. And now because they understand more about it, they're helping me carry and my men carry this burden. Right. Yeah. And so there's something that happens in that process that can't be helped in any VA hospital that yeah. no amount of med can help. It's a cultural shift. Mm-hmm. It's a cultural understanding of what war is like that, that, that I think enables veterans to more easily carry that heavy and traumatic burden. And so, so that sort of, I, that was one of the big things that I learned after writing out while platoon is that soldiers need to do everything they can to tell their story and not be shy about it. And, you know, because our, our everywhere we go, man, like veterans are always very humble because it really is never about us. It's always about the people who didn't make it home. And God, that is so true. But the flip side of that is that if you don't tell your story, then people don't know. And if people don't know, they have no idea what the cost of freedom is. Yep. You no. Know? And so, you know, just like Tom Brady wears his five, six, what well, I don't even know what it is now, six Super Bowl <laughs> rings now, like seven, seven Super Bowl rings now. Um, he wears them and he wears them proudly and he should. Those are amazing accomplishments. That's why I tell veterans like, hey, man, like I get like I get like why we why veteran community, why we are the way that we are. But it's important for you to wear those medals. Those medals separate you from everybody else. And, and hopefully they're a conversation starter, right? Like hopefully people are like, hey, thank you for your service. Where did you serve? What was that like? And through those conversations, you know, a thousand times over in every state in America, maybe we can bridge the gap between people who enjoy freedom on a day-to-day basis and people who protect it. And if we bridge that gap, if we bring those two demographics closer, I mean, the hope is, Jack, that our country, it's good for our country, right? Because yeah. now people understand what it means to live in a free country and not take the freedom that we have here for granted. And, and veterans will feel like they're not exiles in their own country when they come home. Exactly. That's why I think it's so important that everybody read this book, um, particularly people that didn't have that touch point with such a small number of people having that direct touch point with those who have gone down range. Um, this is, uh, you know, best is a it's such a, like what we talked about earlier, such a strange word to say, but this book should be read by every American, in particular those who didn't go downrange to understand what guys like you sacrificed there uh, of, of your youth uh, in many cases. Like a lot of you guys became, you know, older men down there, wiser men down there on the front lines, experiencing what you did, sacrificing what you did. So um, this book is such a, an incredible way to uh, uh, to get that word out there, to connect with people that, that didn't experience that. And uh and when we talk about Afghanistan, oh, by the way, 
I saw a guy shot in the head, same thing in that, in that, uh, with that helmet, same exact thing, <laughs> hit, slowed it down enough. And it was an army guy in Najaf, goes in, goes around, exact same thing. And I've heard from so many people, uh, yeah. helmets doing that and it going in, slowing it down enough that it just goes, breaks the skin, hits the skull and just goes around the outside. Like I've heard that from so many people over the years. So, uh, whoever was making those helmets, uh, you know, well yes, done. God bless you. If you're watching <laughs> this podcast, thank you. Like that's yeah. why- that's why it's certainly because you see these like military movies like from Vietnam where people like take their helmets off or whatever Eesh. they leave crap undone. I'm like, like yeah, keep it on, man. Like it will yeah. save your life. Seriously, seriously, yeah, so on crazy. A of yeah, no, exactly. And there's one line from the book uh, that kind of bridges. Uh, I want to know how it informs what you're hopefully going to be doing going forward in in the Senate here. But this line comes earlier on in in the book, and you say we'd gone through our year in country judging these Afghans through the prism of our own value system, never fully grasping what we were up against. Mm-hmm. And for me, that line really stuck out um, because as a combat leader, one of the primary responsibilities is understanding the nature of the conflict in which you're engaged. Yes. Uh, it is also the responsibility of those senior level military and political leaders who are committing forces to the fight. And in this case, I feel like we had so much, not just ancient history of which, of course, we have Genghis Khan, we have a bunch of other stuff when we're particularly talking about Afghanistan, but we have some more recent stuff too. Three uh, British experiences in there, uh, the Soviet experience, uh, Mm -hmm. and then our own. And we were very ill-prepared. We sent you guys into that fight. Um, You know, the stuff that I did it's going on in every major city in the U S tonight, you know, people serving warrants, you know, they've been doing it since the late sixties and SWAT teams. I mean, you're gathering intelligence, you're going out, you're kicking in a door, you're grabbing somebody, you're getting exploiting them for intelligence, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, but for you, you're out there every day in daylight. And, uh, and I always thought that was important too. Like when I was, uh, working with the army or something like that, it was important for me, not just to be a liaison with those guys, but to get in the strikers like in Missoul and go out there. And I would do the, uh, unless otherwise directed email to my senior level leaders, like, Hey, I'm going out on this patrol thinking that they like would say no. Um, but the, uh, unless otherwise directed, I'll be going out, you know, at, uh, whatever, whatever time, uh, four o'clock this afternoon. And then I'd send it and I wouldn't check email again, you know, cause at those days, especially you had, uh, you know, glitches with comms and oh, I didn't see it didn't come through. Um, but getting out there with those guys was so important, um, to just get in the stack with them, go through these cordon and clearing operations, that sort of a thing in the daylight, dealing with what they were dealing with on a regular day and not just be that guy who's letting them know what special operations wants to do that evening or whatever. So you can, you can coordinate. So yeah, I always yeah. thought that was important. But, um, when you, when you wrote this here, that, that sentence, um, as, as leaders and what you'll hopefully be doing in the Senate here going forward, um, when you look back through this lens, through your experience, um, what, how do you reflect on Afghanistan and us leaving? Uh, Afghanistan at this point. I mean, it's been 20 years. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's one side of it's the academic logic, history, wisdom. And then the other side's the personal side. Like, how do you talk to a family who lost someone over there or to the guy who came back with, uh, you know, missing two legs and an arm? Um, and for me, it's, it's very difficult for me to, 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 to think that part through. Um, but, ha- but I have a way that I, that I, that I conceptualize it and passing on lessons to future generations and turning this experience into wisdom going forward. Um, but how do you look at this last 20 years with your experience, uh, and us leaving? Like, how, how do you think about that in your head when you, when you, when you think about it, whether, you know, publicly, privately, how do you, how do you, I don't know, not rationalize, but how do you, how do you think back on those 20 years and then what we're doing now? 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I'd be lying to you if I told you that I wasn't thinking like, what the hell was it all for? Right. I mean, that's there, but I also realized that we did a lot of amazing things for the, for the Afghan there, Afghans there. And, and, and the men and women who served in that country have so many things to be proud of uh, about that service. Uh, but like, I kind of got a taste of, of this experience a little bit when we were in Afghanistan in that we had, uh, we were doing an operation in, in Musakela and the, and back then, like in Musakela and Helmand province, Afghanistan, the Taliban had just overrun large swaths of Helmand. It was, it was just a hornet's nest down there. And we went down to Musakela, a, a small portion of my platoon went down to, uh, Musa Kayla for a, mi- a special mission down there. And I mean, they just took the fight to the enemy every day and, and drove them out of uh, Musa Kayla and Helmand province and secured everything and, and paid a, a heavy blood price in, in, in the process. And then uh, the Brits came in, we did a battle handover with the Brits, gave it to the Brits and they just gave it all back. And we were just like, like, what the hell did we just bleed the ground red for over there just to give it back? Um, I sort of feel like that now um, in Afghanistan, just watching about how things are falling apart over there and how they're falling apart so quickly. But a couple of things on that. I recognize that most of the debate over leaving Afghanistan centers around the humanitarian component of what Afghanistan will be like after we're gone. In other words, what's going to happen to the interpreters who helped us or the little girls who went to school or the kids who wanted to work on American bases or the adults who, who helped uh, or brought Americans food or water while we were there, people who helped us. What's going to happen to those people? Um, and the reality is, is they will be targets. As you mentioned, there would be different echelons of targets, but the Taliban will go after them. And that's, an, and that's a tragedy uh, because most of the people in that country stepped forward because of the American promise of like, look, we're going to have your backs when we, and, and we're going to help you fight for freedom. But at the same time, we've been there for 20 years. Like I just turned 40 last month. Like we've been at war in Afghanistan in a place where I was wounded for over half of my life. Half of my life we've been at war there, man. <laughs> so like, we can't, we can't stay there forever, right? And, and to your point about the responsibility of leadership here in this, in this country, and I mean Democrats or Republicans and both of those parties do a fine job at mucking things up, you know? Um, we also have an obligation. To, to American kids who go to that war and deserve to have clarity on what the mission is and what end state operations look like, you know? And, and I think if you went to Afghanistan today or, or maybe a few months ago and asked, go to different bases and asked a different American private what the mission was, you'd probably get a different answer from all of them. And that is a huge, huge problem. Yeah. Because if the mission is not clear, it creates hesitation. If there's hesitation on the battlefield, people die. And so, you know, I, I think that it's time to go, right? And, and um, as recognizing very clearly that, that there is a humanitarian component, but that ultimately I think we have an obligation to American sons and daughters who raise their right hand in the hopes to serve this country. And they volunteer to serve this country, knowing that they probably will go to war, knowing that they might have to give their life. But by God, if we're sending them, we sure as hell have, better have a clear-cut mission. And we sure as hell better know what the hell it looks like to be mission complete, you know? And I think part of the problem is, Jack, is the, merit- the, the promotions and the meritocracy, right, of the military, op- of, of, of officership. 
you know, like I remember being in Afghanistan and being on what they call the bubs, the battlefield update briefs. And like, I hadn't thought of that in a while. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, every commander was like this many killed this many missions. Yes. Things are under control. And I'm thinking under control, like (laughs) like, crazy over here. And and like, (laughs) I understand this isn't like a ding on my commanders. Like I understand why they report things that way. But the problem is, is that if it say, say I was a commander in Afghanistan and I was in Eastern Afghanistan, I'm like saying just like, Hey, Shit hit shit's in the fan out here. It's like we ain't gonna be able to get this mission done, right? Well, guess what? I'm not getting promoted. I'm not getting the top block on my officer evaluation report, you know. So because of the meritocracy inherent in our promotion systems, everybody at every level, I think, promotes an overly rosy picture of the battlefield at their at that level of the chain of command, right? And then woven into that are officers. Not all officers, but many that are only concerned, or maybe I'll just say leaders, right? Leaders that are only concerned with their bow and never their wake, right? Mm. Because they play that game, right? Great line. And yeah. so guys like, you know, after I got out, I told you in this in this interview, I'm like, my nine lives are up. I'm popping <laughs> like so guys that have experienced the most amount of war get out. They don't like to play this the game. They're not willing to say, hey, everything's peachy here, like everything's going great. So those guys get out and what's left are those people that are only concerned about their bow, never their wake. And that's why we end up with generals who end up being like politicians. And, and, and it's a, it's a real, it's a real problem. And I think that that's why Jack, at the end of every year, you can go back and look at like the overall situation report in Afghanistan comes out in January of every year. It's always like, we're on track. Things are going great. You know, or yep. on track for a couple of years, we'll be peasy clean. Yeah, but like we're never, you know, that's not true. Yeah, and and we get, get to that point where those reports are issued because no one's willing to say, wait a second, things are foobar, and we need to adjust strategy. We need to do it boldly. Yeah, you know? old adjustments, so, exactly right. So moving forward, like leaders, you know, whether you're if you if you running for political office in the House for the Senate or God, you know, you're advising the president or national security team. You better be aware of that dynamic because seek and find people who are willing to give you honest assessments at tactical levels on the battlefield, right? Mm -hmm. And typically it's the door kickers, the people who have seen the most amount of combat that will give you that unvarnished view, but they have to be sought out unless the meritocracy and our promotion system is reformed. Oh yeah. That's a big one. Uh, Just that we're still... We're promoting people off a system that was like developed over a hundred years ago. You know, yeah, like there's, yeah. there's other ways to evaluate people today exactly. that you couldn't have, maybe you couldn't have done or would have been extremely hard to do, let's say in like 1890 or 1910. But yeah. uh, we can do these things today a little, little better. We can, we can adapt. Um, yes. But yeah, like my novels are fiction, but once again, very therapeutic to write. And then these senior level <laughs> leaders, they give me no shortage of material when yeah, I'm coming yeah. up with politicians in uniform or politicians to make bad guys. Like they just, yeah. they make that part easy on me. And it is very therapeutic now as a citizen to, to write about them and vent uh, through the, the medium of, of popular fiction. But uh, so what you're doing now, I mean, so you, I mean, you came back, uh, is it the uh, American Warrior Initiative? That you start yeah, that, when you get back, you're you're doing all these things for for veterans. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. I encourage everybody to go check out what you're doing, American Warrior Initiative. But you run for a seat, Pennsylvania, in one of the most 
contentious election cycles uh, in recent memory. That's I guess we could, that's probably a that's a safe way to say to say yeah. that. Um, you can't really argue with with that. Um, and you're running uh, Pennsylvania 17th congressional district. Um, and, uh, you know, I was so excited to see you get in that race. Uh, I wanted to support you as much as I might possibly could. Um, we need good guys in there, good people in, in Congress to lead this, this next generation. Uh, and I was shocked that you didn't get it. Like I was following along fairly closely, you know, since we have a personal connection. Um, so of all the races going on, you know, I'm, I'm watching <laughs> this and, you know, I was like, oh, he's got this. Uh, it was so close. I mean, so close, so yeah. contentious, especially when you put it, plug it into everything else that was going on in the country at that time. But uh, can you talk about that, that race for people that, for oh. people like me who don't understand what it's like to throw your hat in the ring like that? And then how you go about running and getting support and getting your name on a ballot and then running against somebody and like, oh. uh, and then especially during this time, which was, I think, probably a little different than it would have been had you done this 10 years ago. Yeah, man. Oh my gosh. It, I, I'd never, i I'd always been involved in the fight um, ever since I came back, whether it was like, you know, volunteering on campaigns at the local state and federal level, helping candidates knock doors. Like I just, I just always felt um, it was important to be involved in that process and, 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 and advising members of the house and the Senate. I've done that since I come back, like on national security issues, veterans issues, foreign policy. Um, yeah. I was even on, on a gov, I was the chairman of, uh, then Republican Governor Corbett's Veterans Coalition. Um, so I'd always like been involved, and then, but I never really wanted to run myself. And then, so you're gathering uh, information. You're getting you're getting a peek yeah. behind the curtain a little bit. You're developing this knowledge base. So that's okay. And then President Trump comes to Western Pennsylvania and like name drops me in a speech. And I remember that about the run, and I wasn't even there or never met him, never talked to him. I was in South Carolina with the American Warrior Initiative giving away a service dog and my phone is like blowing up. I've got like, like I come off something to talk and like on stage, we just presented this dog and my phone is ringing in my pocket, like over and over and over again. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I like sneak off stage and like, I see I got like 56 missed calls and it's calls from like reporters and political consultants and all these people like, what the hell is going on? And my mom is calling me over and over and over again. And I'm like, Oh my God, like she doesn't call me unless there's something wrong. Yeah, and so yeah. I see to my mom, what's going on. And she goes, Sean, are you, are you running for Congress? And I said, mom, no, I'm not running for Congress. And she goes, well, president Trump says you're running for Congress. And I'm like, what? Cause I guess the dude, he goes, goes off script quite a bit, you know, <laughs> and she sends me the video of president Trump and it's president Trump saying like, you know, Sean Parnell is a brilliant military man. He's got everything going. I'm like, what the hell? And so I guess, <laughs> like, so like, I, I, I went from this, like, I just turned my life upside down to get, to get in the race. And like, you know, I respect the office of the president, you know, and if it's like, if Barack Obama said, Hey, Sean, we're going to send you back to Afghanistan to be the, the ambassador of Afghanistan. First thing I would have done would be like throw up in my mouth a little bit because <laughs> I would want to do it, but I would do it because I respect that office and what it represents so much. So I turned my life upside down, got in the race and with no real official political experience, started doing everything I could to learn about this process. And it was a, uh, it was like drinking from a fire hose every day. Um, but I was really proud of the campaign that we ran, man. I mean, we were a yeah. grassroots campaign, we ended up having tens of thousands of like volunteers, people who were willing to like make phone calls for us or knock on doors for us or help us work events. And we ended up having 45,000 individual donors. 
Um, which is a big deal, by the way. Like I liken campaign dollars to bullets in a gun. Like if you, you know, you run out of ammo in combat surrounded by the enemy, you're dead. Same is true in, in same is true in politics, right? Like you run out of money on a campaign, then the enemy, like or your opponent, can bludgeon you to death with ads on TV or on the radio or whatever, and you don't have the ability to respond, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And so the, a lot of people, even even pundits, um, who've been reporting on politics their whole life would be like, Oh, so how's it going? The Republican party give you a lot of money. And I started laughing. <laughs> the, Republican party, the Republican party, they helped, they helped me in a lot of ways. Um, and, and many, many ways with policy and stuff like that. Um, uh, and roll call vote sheets, whatever. But the Republican party doesn't like cut you a check and say, <laughs> here you go, run your campaign. No, yeah. you've got to like, you've got to like earn it. You got, and basically like people think that like, you know, being on stage with Trump and doing the sexy stuff is like what running for political office is. When in reality, it's like me in a dark room, like on a phone, cold calling people begging for money. And like 99% of the time, it's like, no, screw you, hang up. But it's like that one time out of 10, people are like, okay, tell me about your campaign. You're like, thank you, you know? And so that's why I say like, what this is part of the problem with our politics, Jack, because we get so many people, by the way, on both sides of the aisle that are like rich, super rich, super rich, out of touch, because they basically, they don't have to like earn it. They go in, they self-fund, they spend their own money. And, you know, maybe saying that they're buying a seat is a little bit extreme, but they don't have to do the cold calls or the fundraising. You know, so but when you have 45,000 individual donors, that's powerful, right? When you can fill up a baseball stadium with the amount of donors that you have now, that's how the system was intended to work, mm. right? Where I'm beholden to the people, I'm not beholden to a corporation or a special interest or you know, uh, donors from you know, New York City or California. I'm beholden to the, the small dollar donors who help helped me accomplish the mission. So, 45,000 individual donors was something I'm real proud of. And we just ran an old school style campaign, man, just sort of like you would run like a, a military unit. We had like our volunteers were called Parnell's platoon. Yeah. So those military guys were like, oh, that's kind of cheesy, but it's cool. Like, people yeah, were- you can okay. click on that on your, that website on, uh, <laughs> on Parnell for Senate. It's right there. You can click on it, sign up for yeah. uh sign up for a newsletter and, uh, and make a donation and all that sort of thing. Um, and then how did, so now you're, now it's Senate. I mean, so you're, you, so you ran yeah. for, for that, uh, for that seat, you know, crazy. I mean, I love the ads by the way. I mean, your ads are, are awesome or uh, the ones that are out there, uh, when you walking through the factory wow. and then the new one out there right now, uh, John Burns, uh, it was John Burns, right? John Burns. Yeah. It, I mean, amazing. Start off with his story, Pennsylvania ties in there. But when it, when it, my first thought when, uh, you know, on, on the house seat last year, I was like, come on, Pennsylvania. I was like, come on, we were just, ah, it was so uh, close. I mean, it was such a close race, right? I mean, right down to the uh, wire and then all sorts of contention afterward. Um, but, uh, I mean, you were so close. It was well, crazy. You, know, you probably learned thing. a ton. I'm sure you learned a oh ton. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Look, I mean, yeah, I learned, you know, on election night, you know, the, here, there's so, so many, so much, so much happened after the fact. And, and it, and it, it's confused. It, it bothers me a little bit. That the media is, tries to shut down any conversation about this because, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or Democrat. We should both be able to come together to try to make our elections better every time. Like even in the 21st century in America, 
even one person's vote getting canceled out by an, an illegal vote or a vote that wasn't cast properly is too much. Like mm-hmm. we have all the technology in the world to make sure that that, that does not happen. And if it happens once, that means one person out there's vote doesn't count. Yep. And in the United States of America, that shouldn't happen. And the only way that we prevent things like that from happening are good faith conversations on both sides. Like, you know, I know the, the Dominion voting machines. I'm sure you, people talk about that crap all the time. And I, I'm not making I'm just saying that Democrats had issues with those machines in 2018. Republicans had issues with those machines in 2020. Maybe that's something that instead of pointing a finger at one another, maybe we could come together and say maybe maybe, maybe we can do something to like give people like a warm and fuzzy about these voting machines. Like maybe Democrats and Republicans can come together, develop reforms that make our elections better, like instead of just yelling, screaming and blaming. Right. Um, And so I I did learn a lot, though. I learned a lot about the system. I learned a lot about the process. And basically I've got all those donors and all those volunteers that are still motivated. And we just turned around and pivoted to the Senate because there's an there's an open seat here in Pennsylvania. Um, Senator Toomey, who's a Republican, he's retiring. There hadn't been an open seat in Pennsylvania for for a very, very long time. And so we just turned right around and didn't quit and just got right back in the fight. And and we feel real good about it, man. And and what I tell people is like, yeah, I'm running with an R after my name. Ultimately, I'm a constitutional conservative. You know, I did not take an oath to protect and defend any political party, Republican or Democrat. I took an oath to defend the people of the state. And by the way, um, that means Republicans, Democrats, independents, and others. It means representing everybody. And if that means pissing people off in the Republican Party and the Democrat Party every now and again, so be it. I don't care about that. I'm, uh, you know, and um, so for me, it's not about finding the, re- the, re- the Republican solution to the problems that we face today or the Democrat solutions. It's about finding the right ones. And it's about making sure that whatever legislation is put forth or whatever solution that we advocate for adheres to the Constitution first, last, and always. That's it. That's it. And, this, and going forward, this next decade is going to be so important. It seems like you know, those on the, on the, uh, the side of the Constitution, on the side of freedom and liberty and opportunity, um, have, we, we've I don't want to say, I hate saying lost, um, but the culture war, we didn't spend much time um, right. recognizing how important um, popular culture uh, is uh, to the country and to the world. And essentially from the 19, let's say mid fifties, you know, certainly picking up steam in the sixties onward, um, we essentially conceded education, um, uh-huh. big tech now, Hollywood, publishing, um, sports now, um, like almost every facet of society, except for maybe small business and, uh, the political realm, you know, we're, you know, if half and half ish, um, but everything else, like we didn't spend much time on. Um, so it's so important to get uh-huh. guys like you in there and, uh, that, that understand the history of this country, understand what people sacrificed from the inception of this country up until today. So we have these freedoms and opportunities, uh, that we do, uh, and are going to make decisions that are going to account for making sure that future generations, our kids and grandkids have those same freedoms and options and opportunities. Exactly right, man. That's That is the mission, right? And for the first time in my life, I am, it's not a foregone conclusion that our kids will inherit an America that's rich with opportunity. It's just not. And, um, free, you know, you heard Reagan talk about the freedom has to be fought for. It's not passed down in the blood, in the bloodstream from he's exactly right. And, and at this phase in my life, 
that that's where I'm at. Like this is our generation's time. Look, we fought on the battlefield, in many cases, bled on the battlefield. And a lot of our friends, brothers and sisters did not come home. But that fight, like, it's like, you can't come, we can't get home, take a knee and then like lay down and quit. You know, we have to stay in the fight. And I think our country expects us to stay in the fight. And politics is, is dirty, but it ain't nothing compared to what combat was like. And so, you know, I, I can take whatever the left throws. Uh, and I, and by the way, I, again, I come from a family of Allegheny County, Western Pennsylvania Union Democrats. So I don't approach these issues as a rabid partisan. I approach these issues of like, is this constitutional or not? And if it me, yes, it's constitutional, then I, then we, then we can have a conversation. Right. Um, but I, I feel like our country right now, we face a lot of very great leadership challenges, right? I think our debt and deficit is going to be one of the greatest leadership challenges of our time. You know, we're th- almost 30 trillion with a T dollars. And de- I mean, that, that is just a mind boggling number that your children and my children and their children's children are going to have to pay. The bill is going to come due on that eventually. And, and oh, by the way, we're borrowing a lot of that money from China, who is the number one geopolitical foe, the greatest threat that I believe this nation has ever faced economically, militarily, uh, the greatest threat that we've ever faced, and we're borrowing money from them? I, I, I just, I just- It's so crazy it, that these things so seem so hard. obvious. That's why I get so frustrated. Like, And I'm a little bit opposite from you in that I, I would rather go back to Afghanistan and Iraq than get, be going to <laughs> politics. Like- because it, it, down there I could do something that's kinetic. Why you should though. That's exactly why. <laughs> that's why I'm not trying to push you. I, I, I'm not. <laughs> but that's precisely the kind of people that we need, though. You know, like I am not going to be a career guy, right? My whole mission, by the way, is to go to Washington for a couple of terms, shrink the size and scope of the federal government, because I be, I truly believe that there's a direct correlation between a small federal government and more freedom in our lives. And then I'm going to buy a farm in Western Pennsylvania and, and like probably never talk to anybody. again. <laughs> so, so I, I, That's fantastic. You know? Well, it's great. I think I feel like we're walking into an L ambush and the L ambush is big tech here and big government here. And I don't say Republican or Democrat for a reason right there, but it's big government on this side. It's big tech on this side. And it's us walking in the middle with our constitution uh, right. right into that ambush. And it's so obvious that we're walking that direction. Uh, it's like, we can see them. And we can see they have this ground up here that's a tactically advantageous because they can control, in many cases, our behaviors even. And that's the scary part, influencing behaviors yeah. through all the information that's been gathered over the last 20 years that we've been putting in passwords into these computers. But we're walking into this thing and we see it and we're not taking, well, I guess we're taking some steps here and there, but we're not making bold adjustments. And we're walking yeah. right into this well, ambush and we're about exactly to get right. friggin' slaughtered. You're exactly right. So you're talking like big tech, big media, big biz, big business colluding, all three of them colluding with big government to force things upon the American people. Mm-hmm. That is not good. That's no. not it's one of the greatest threats that we face to today. Um, and, and for years, it used to be um, the Democrat Party and the mainstream media, you know, 10, even 10 years ago, it was uh, the Democrat Party uh, in, in Washington would collude with the mainstream media and the mainstream media would elevate their talking points, but then conservatives would respond with our conservative media, talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, Breitbart, whatever, and we'd respond, right? And the American people 
would watch that debate unfold and, and determine what path forward was the best for the country. The danger now is those two dynamics exist, right? Except for now there's big tech, which can flip a switch and censor one side of the debate. Yep. And that that's the danger. And some big tech oligarch is determining what people can and cannot say and on either side of the aisle. Um, that's a real, it's a real problem. It's a real challenge. In fact, it's one that that certainly Republicans are dealing with now, but it's also been these, these are these are issues that have been raised by Elizabeth Warren on the campaign trail like a year ago. Yep, I remember. So, um, there's these these are things that I think Republicans and Democrats should be able to come together on, but but because things are so divided, it, it's just it's so challenging and difficult to do. But but it's also the reason why I think it's so important for veterans to to run, you know, because if you're a veteran, like whether you're a Democrat or Republican, at some point you've volunteered in your in your life to to like put a great many things before your life, right? So like you're signing on that dotted line, you're you're putting service to your country before having a family or making a dollar or even before your own life. Mm-hmm. And I think that like when that happens, that again, Democrat or Republican, you get to Washington, you're more willing to set aside the sort of poisonous political dialogue and do what's best for the country and put the country first, right? Like when you look at the relationship that Ronald Reagan had with Tip O'Neill, they were able to work together and 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 do things for this country that that were phenomenal. And the same thing is true for for Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, right? Two yep. opposite parties, but we live at a different time today, and I think that's I think that's precisely why people in this country are so desperate for more leaders and fewer politicians. Yep. No, you're exactly right. There's a great photo of uh, Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan out with Tip O'Neill, his wife, and they're at the Kennedy Center and they're in tuxedos and they just had dinner and they're sitting. Can you imagine the leaders of both parties going out with their spouses uh, and putting on the tuxes and sitting down for dinner and then going to a show together? Like that just, I can't imagine that, but you go back to that photo and it's, it's so poignant in that you're like, oh, this wasn't that long ago, but we were getting in. We used to be able to, regardless of what you thought about Second Amendment issues or other, the First Amendment used to be something that we could all rally around because we could say, hey, I disagree with you, but I'm standing up and I'm fighting for your right to say it. We used to, that used to be the thing, like growing up 70s, 80s, 90s, yes. like that was something that totally. we all could agree on. And now we don't even agree on that. Now it's like, that's yeah. become a contentious thing. Just, it, it's, it's so painful to see that unfolding. Um, and then realizing that our children are going to probably be fighting this, uh, this fight as well. Maybe with not all the, all the tools that, that we had, all this respect for the constitution and everyone who gave these rights to us by, well, by sacrificing that, themselves, um, and, and their families and their, oh, it's just, it, it, it's disheartening. So, but I want to ask, what gives you hope also? Cause we're talking like, when I think about these issues, I'm like, oh my God, my wife and I talk about it all the time. Um, and you know, we're, you know, you don't almost, you don't know what to do. You feel so. Uh, you feel helpless in many, in many, in many cases, uh, and you're getting in the fight, you're getting in the ring, but, uh, it, so you must have hope in that you're getting in this ring. You believe that this is a country still worth, worth fighting for, that these principles are still worth fighting for. Uh, so totally. when you wake up in the morning and you know, oh man, here we go, I'm get, getting after it again today, uh, in this new, on the, in this new battle space, like what gives you hope to step in to that ring? What, what, uh, what are you thinking about? You know what? I'm, I, I'm, thinking about my kids and and trying to make sure that that is as you were just talking about that our kids inherit a country that's great and free and and rich with opportunity and um one where they can express their opinions and 
without fear of, of being canceled, right? Um, and so this country, there are so many people out there, and, and that's the greatest privilege of running for political office, is, is there's so much, it's such a grind, and there's so much backstabbing, and there's, there's so much politicking, and, and fundraising is difficult, but the people are really what make this worthwhile. And I sort of, you know, just as I mentioned how great troops inspire their leaders, like the, the people of this country uh, inspire me. Every day when we're out there on the campaign trail, we meet people that maybe they don't have a loud megaphone, but they feel the same way as, as you and I. And they'll say to you, like, please keep fighting. Please keep fighting for me and my family. Please keep fighting for my kids. Or thank you for advocating for, for my kids and, 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 and standing up when no one else will. Um, that, that is why that's what gives me hope. That, that, that's what makes it worthwhile. There are, still, there are still millions and millions and millions of Americans who feel just like we do. And, and the reality isn't like what's on Twitter or Instagram or, or, or Facebook. It's, it's out there in our communities and people who love and appreciate this, this country and just want more leaders, you know? And so I'm just going to keep fighting like hell for all of them. Man, I love hearing you say that. That fires me up. Uh, I'm going to pass that along to my wife. I'm going to be like, hey, Sean's fired up. He's out there doing it. So uh, so thank you for for stepping in the ring. Uh, I've already kept you over an hour longer than I than I said I would. So thank, right, you, for, thank you for taking that uh, the time to to do this. And uh, and then you also have a, an Eric Steele novel. You have a, a, yes. a series of fiction uh, thrillers that are coming out. I think it's coming out September 7th, if memory yeah. serves. Um, so the latest one is coming out. And uh, it's a true red, white, and blue hero that you have as the protagonist of these novels. Um, and uh, and that, that's coming out here shortly. And hopefully that's a gateway. If people are not nonfiction readers, it's a gateway to, to this right here. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. So, so important. Um, so that's that's coming out soon. Yeah, Left for Dead, man. I'm excited about this book. I think Left for Dead is, is the best story yet, you know? And I think people are really, really going to like it. Really, really good. It, it talks about the, the rising threat uh, of China and what I think the next phase in their geopolitical operations is going to be and how the heck America gets their arms around that, nice. you know? And so I'm excited about, I'm, I'm excited for it. Nice. I love that we can explore some of these themes through the, uh, the yeah. medium of popular fiction. I think it's a, it's yes. a really great way. It's also, it's, it's therapeutic. It's a cathartic. It is fiction. Um, but, uh, but you also get to explore a lot of different things that you might not necessarily take the time to explore otherwise. So, uh, yeah. so thank you for writing those. Um, everybody get out there, get out, blah, platoon, get the, uh, get the novels. And then everybody in Pennsylvania, get to Parnell for Senate.com and <laughs> join Parnell's platoon and help support this cause. Um, and sign up for the, for the email donate. You just heard how, uh, how a dollar is like a round in your M4 mag. Um, so anything and everything I'm sure, uh, is, is appreciated and helps move the bar forward. So, um, so definitely check that out and do Sean, thank you so much for, uh, your support personally and professionally. Um, thanks for being such a, uh, a great advocate for, for veterans and a great example veterans out there. Uh, and then not just for, for doing that from the sidelines, but for getting right back on the field and going into what to me seems worse than Iraq and Afghanistan uh, from the outside. So, uh, so thank you for, for putting yourself at risk in the political arena and, uh, fighting for all of us who believe in these principles of, uh, of freedom and opportunity. 
Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Take care and we'll talk again soon. All right. See you, Jack. Better, brother. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. I want to talk about an artist, Elwood T. Risk. You can find him at elwoodtrisk.com. I first became aware of him years ago when he did a project with a friend of mine who shot around every minute on the minute on the 11th anniversary of 9-11 for every SEAL killed in action. And then Elwood T. Risk made a piece of art called Until It Hurts. And you can go on his website and check that out. Uh, you might also have noticed some of his work in the background of Hollywood productions like Californication, Six Feet Under, a host of others. This was the one that was behind me in my last office. Dun -dun, pretty sweet. And it is uh, now in another room in the house. And then we got, when I got out of the military, my wife and I got our first real piece of art. And it was an Elwood T. Risk piece called Blue Risk with Halo. And if you scroll down to my Instagram, you can see it there, but it's awesome. It's stunning, uh, just as is everything that, uh, that he does. Uh, I picked this up while I was in San Pedro last week. So thank you so much for this gift. I love it. It's going to go right here behind me as soon as I find a hammer and a nail. And I was in San Pedro doing a little filming for The Terminal List, starring Chris Pratt coming to Amazon Prime on redacted. But if you pay attention as you're watching the series, when it drops, you just might notice Elwood T. Risk art in the background. I'm not going to say which piece it is, but uh, keep your eyes peeled. So uh, elwoodtrisk.com, go check him out there, follow him on Instagram and uh, incredible work. So thank you, my friend. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast and Ironclad Original presented by Six Hour. For more on Sean Parnell, go to parnellforsenate.com. Check out his videos there. Check out Parnell's platoon, make a donation, support, find out a little more about him, and you can link to his social channels from there. Be sure and pick up Outlaw Platoon and his latest Eric Steele novel. You can find me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, and you can go to jackcarusa.com for the hats, for the mugs, for t-shirts, for all that sort of things, bookmarks, and uh, and everything else that's going on there. You can go to officialjackcar.com and check out the reading lists, the blog, and get some information on behind the scenes of the terminal list starring Chris Pratt. So thank you so much for tuning in. And until the next time, stay safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm -hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm -hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.